Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us no. You can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers, three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. Hey guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. This is Adam, all by my lonesome. I just did an interview with uh, Gary Lockman, and a very interesting interview about Colin Wilson, who is kind of a inspiration for me as well as for Gary. Um, you may have heard me read some excerpts from a book called The Mammoth Book of the Unsolved. That is by Colin Wilson and also by his son, Damon Wilson. So we're going to talk about this book that Gary has out called Beyond the Robot. And I'm kind of doing this in, this intro because we I started talking to Gary and we just started kind of going into the interview straight ahead. Um, so there really was no break there for me to start the interview. So um, that's what I'm doing now. And so I'm going to go to that. And after that, um, Rob and Serfiel and I are going to get together and we're going to talk about a book uh, called Carnivals of Life and Death by James Shelby Downer. This is our first in our series of book reviews that we're going to do. So guys, thank you very much. We will be back. I will be back with Rob and Serfiel uh, on the flip side of this interview. So stay tuned.
I'm looking at a CD here that I have called um, American Power Pop 2. And uh, you're on this thing. All right. All right. God, that's ancient. I guess you know about it. Uh, well, I know there was a couple. I'm trying to think what, I don't know. It was, um, the what stuff that Rhino put out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, well, I, I, I know there were a couple American Power Pop. I didn't know there was a two. I know there was one, but I'm trying to think. Yeah. What, what the song that's on it? here is the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the. Which is a good song, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that was my, my contribution to sort of, you know, indie power pop before <laughs> that indie. But yeah, yeah. No, no, that was fun. I did that ages. Well, that's that's ancient. That's that's 40 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did that in 78, I believe. Uh, yeah, when I first moved to L.A. It's some wow. time ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to... Well, I've had a couple of people on from that, like, CBGB scene back in the day. Yeah. Um, I had Richard Lloyd on not too long ago. Oh, right. right. Um, he lives, interesting guy. He lives, yeah. uh, he lives in, in Chattanooga, which is actually where I'm from, which is a couple hours okay. away from me. All right. And, uh, it's funny because I, I mean, I, I didn't, well, we, we knew who each other were back in the yeah. day. And we actually, yeah. we were on tour together in the sense that Blondie opened for, um, uh, television uh, again 40 41 years ago in 77 when um we came to uk for the first tour but more i was going to say more recently yeah. we got a bit of exchange on facebook oh okay yeah sort of similar interests in uh um well the ideas of um gorgif and Uspensky. yeah so uh, yeah, you, you know, you know, years on, you meet people in another, in another, in another way, uh, and about something else as well. But no, I know his book came out, and I, I haven't had a chance to look at it, but apparently it's got good reviews. Yeah, yeah, it's a good book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, we 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 kind of got him on the subject of the more kind of mystical stuff, which I mm. think he actually kind of appreciated. Well, I'm sure he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, you replaced the guy that. Uh, well, that went into television became the bass player. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Fred Smith. Yeah, yeah. He well, he well. The story is Richard Held left television to start uh, what, but became the Heartbreakers with um, you know two thirds of the of the two two fifths of the New York Dolls and um, Thunders and um, Jerry Nolan and yeah. Fred Smith. Fred Smith was playing in Blondie in some version of Blondie. Uh, and, and apparently Patty Smith suggested to him that he <laughs> go and, and uh, you know, play with uh, Verlaine. Um, and apparently there was some, this had happened a couple times before. I think there was another, I, Ivan Kroll. Yeah, he was a guitarist who um, <clears throat> was playing with Debbie in some early incarnation and then uh, got pinched um, to uh, be in the Patty Smith group. Um, and so, yeah, I was, well, I, I, I knew the drummer Clem and I was, on the scene, uh, wore dark glasses, was very skinny, and uh, all that kind of thing, and could barely play. And that was that was the best thing. That was the you know, um, yeah. And I I I'd met you know Debbie and Chris and all that. We had gone to you know some of their gigs in downtown L.A. Uh, L.A. Excuse me, downtown Manhattan. Um, in any case, yeah. So I started playing. So there's all this kind of family tree, uh, sort of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I. I uh, I have that first Blondie album somewhere, uh, the one that the one that you're on, and I listened to uh, 
I'm always touched by your presence mm. here mm. You know, yesterday or like a couple of days ago mm. and, and knowing what you're, you know, what you write about now, listening mm. to that song, that song makes a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, well, as I said, other places, I think it's the only song or the only top 10 hit that has theosophy in the lyrics. Or yeah, it does. Yeah. Like um, yeah. I, I caught that. I never, you know, never caught onto that, yeah. never caught onto that line. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, what it was about is, you know, has uh, been, been, been said before, but um, my girlfriend and I at the time, we, we found that we were sort of having the same dream or sharing dreams or, you know, at least sort of telepathic mm-hmm. experiences and, you know, what synchronicities, these sort of, you know, strange, meaningful coincidences happening. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that was sort of the, the origin of, of the song. And um yeah, yeah, that was you know. What can I say? It's a very, it's it's a good song. I have to say so. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a really and good and, song. and and at the time I was on on, on top of the experiences we had, or uh, you know, within within them, or they took place within this. Was that I, I had already started reading um, the sort of thing I'm writing about now. This yeah, is, that's when it started when I was playing in Blondie and. 75 uh yeah this time yeah that's 42 years ago uh this time of year around starting and um uh, what a place we lived in on the bowery um a loft space not too far from cbgb the club where everybody played um somebody who lived there this uh, flamboyant wild artist was very much into Crowley and and the tarot, and he would he was doing these big paintings like based on tarot cards, and he would sort of he had a deck of Alistair Crowley's tarot deck, Thoth tarot deck, mm-hmm. which was relatively rare at the time, and he would do these readings, and then you know books were floating around, and W. Chris had a kind of kitschy uh, interest in the occult and sort of voodoo dolls and candles and you know things like that and pen- pentagrams and pentacles and things. Um, and one of the books I read at the time really uh, had a major impact on me, and that was uh, Colin Wilson's book, The Occult. Um, and I hadn't read anything like it before. I had never really had an interest in the occult per se. I mean, I'd, I'd read a lot already, you know, as one, as one did. So, you know, I read sort of the beats and existentialism and so on and so on. And um, But um, I hadn't read anything about the occult per se. And, and um, yeah, it just, it just blew me away, that book. And um, uh, because it, it, was, it wasn't just a book about ghost stories or hauntings or, you know, spells or things of that sort. It was um, a history of it, but from this philosophical you know perspective about consciousness about higher states of consciousness more intense consciousness and this is what attracted me to it and um after reading that i just got into reading all the stuff you know it was and it was it was there and it, it, it was it was kind of a golden age uh for kind of occult books or occult literature because there were a lot of um sort of discount um uh publishers uh, putting out you know out of copyright old um, works on on magic and the occult and a variety of different things. So there was all, all stuff that was you know pretty cheap, and it was uh, in all the bookshops, not just the specialized places. And so I I just dived in, and uh, that's again that started in 1975. And um, um, today, you know, I'm I've written 21 books. Uh, wow, that's more or less devoted, you know, to to those themes. There's a few other things in there, but uh, yeah. So it was it's been uh, quite a long uh, obsession. And he wrote that book in 74, right? 
the occult. Uh, no, I know. I, 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 he wrote it in the late sixties, and I, I believe okay. it came out first in seventy um, one. I mean, okay. he tells a story that um, he was approached in the late sixties uh, by an American publisher because because of the occult boom, um, which started in the early nineteen sixties. My my first book, Turn Off Your Mind. Um, mystic 60s and the dark side of the age of Aquarius is, is, is about this occult revival of the 1960s that if you, know, if you go back and you look at the popular culture then and even you know the politics um, there's this occult magical strange uh, surreal almost uh, character a great deal of it and um, what started that off was a book called The Morning of the Magicians that was um, first published in, in France in uh, 61, I believe. Um, and uh, it was a surprise bestseller there. And it, it got the whole sort of occult publishing boom going. And then it was a bestseller when it was translated into English, but in, in the States and in the UK. And publishers just, you know, they, they just uh, saw where things were going. And so they started commissioning. And another big book was the one, it was one called The Black Arts by Richard Cavendish, which came out, I think, around 66. People like the Rolling Stones or, or Jagger was, was seen buying it and all that kind of thing. So by that time, you know, publishers were looking for, you know, good writers. And <clears throat> Wilson had written quite, quite a few books by then. Um, he wasn't as popular as he had been, say, a decade earlier. But um, he, and he needed the money, he said. And he said he had sort of had a tongue-in-cheek attitude towards it. Like, it was interesting. He had always read books about it. And even in some of his early novels um there's a character based on crowley and um you know there's a, 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 other bits and pieces of a kind of occult magical sort of things turn up but always you know kind of relatively um sort of say kind of tongue-in-cheek or um you know not not too serious but but as he did the research he realized that his sort of you know uh, good natured skepticism was 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 inadequate to actually deal with the with the material and he came upon came upon more, more, one, you know, evidence after evidence, you know, convincing kind of account after convincing account, and that it, it changed his whole attitude towards it. And then his sort of second career took off because, you know, he was, he became famous in 1956 with his first book, The Outsider. He was a celebrity overnight boy genius um, in, in not, not only in England, but um, in, these, in the States as well. Uh, and um, then quickly the critics turned on him um, and um, he kind of fell from favor, and uh, this was his comeback book. So yeah, it, it came out in '71, and then it was on you know somebody's bookshelf in one of the you know different uh, places of people I, I I knew in in in, in New York at that time. And uh, I mean the other one I read at the time was Crowley's uh, I think Diary of a Drug Fiend, which everybody was reading because it was <laughs> drugs, you know. So that was like the other way into it too. It was like oh yeah, you know okay yeah, you take drugs, you get stoned, and then you you know you practice this magic, and um, you know. So that was my introduction to it. And as I said, and I'm, I'm now I'm, uh, you know, written quite a, quite a few things. And I'm just, uh, I've just had a book come out and there's another one coming out um, in a couple of months. You're getting as prolific as Wilson was. Politics about the president. The president is being a chaos magician. So. Yeah. I, yeah, that's that's one I need to have you back on for. Mm. You know, I, I've, I've read the occult. Um, my introduction to Colin Wilson uh, was one of the books that you describe as more kind of uh, pulpy in mm. your book, which is, uh, well, I think it's reprinted as this in 2000. It's called The Mammoth Book of the Unsolved. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's more like, you know, the Wilson's second career 
that I've really got mm-hmm. into, you know, like this, like the stuff about the occult and that mm-hmm. book. I mean, yeah. that book is basically my Bible. I've read that thing on this show. Like, yeah, well, he's, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he just I mean, has I, such a well-rounded way of looking at all these different things and just his, his writing is so fascinating. Mm. And, and yes, Atlantis yes. to the Sphinx is another one that I've, that I've read. Um, Atlantis to the Sphinx. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, uh, well, these are, you know, things from, well, well that came out, I guess, the mid, I think, 96, uh, from Atlantis to the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he's had a series of different kind of, um, you know, big, fat kind of anthology, not anthology, but uh, a, a lot of the later books on the occult, it's material he's covered already in, you know, the major books like The Occult, Mysteries, then there was one called Beyond the Occult, finally. Those are the three sort of big, you know, um, kind of full-on studies. And then he's, as you say, there's the mammoth book of that. There's, you know, of right, there's one called Supernatural. They're, they sort of came out, and there's a couple that he, his son, Damon Wilson, worked yeah. with. And, you know, this kind of collection of different things. So usually this kind of like strange powers would be like a section or, you know, mysteries of time and space or something like that. And then, you know, he brings together all these things. And one of the things I try to um, uh, argue in in my book about him, which incidentally is called Beyond the Robot, the life and work of Colin Wilson, is that although um, at a first glance, when you see how many books he wrote and the number of different things that he wrote about, he does give the impression of somebody who just, he just write about anything and there isn't anything connecting them all. And, and, he, and, and those kinds of books, you know, which, you know, a lot of them were sold in supermarkets, you know, he was just putting together these kind of collections of, 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 you know, different uh, occult or magical sort of topics. Um, they, they give that impression too, but really at, at bottom, and this is something that does come through in all of his work because he always, he always refers it in the end. Uh, to this theme is this whole theme about the limitations of consciousness and 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 which for him you know is this whole idea of our this you know what he calls the paradoxical nature of freedom and this you know um sense in which you know we, we we're sort of trapped in this kind of um situation where when uh, we don't have freedom we know how important it is and we'll struggle for it and 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 freedom for him is this kind of inner you know it's not necessarily political freedom. He's not, he's not, not talking about that, but for him, it's really an inner, inner kind of experience. And then it's something that we absolutely, you know, will will fight, fight to have and maintain. And then, but once we get it, there's a kind of collapse, you know, our our grasp of it weakens and the intensity that we felt when we were striving to regain it kind of goes away. And this is this key problem in human consciousness. And this is what he addressed over, you know, a, a career lasting more than half a century. And yeah, it, it took him from, you know, originally writing about existentialism and people like Nietzsche and Sartre and um, Camus and, you know, uh, things that were very, very, you know, popular and, and, and uh, at the forefront in, in, in the 50s to, as you say, these, this later um, exploration of um, <clears throat> the occult and supernatural, but they're all connected. Let's talk about... Um... Let's talk about his like early life, um, his life before he wrote The Outsider, because I believe, I mean, he was fairly young. I mean, he was, what, 24? He was 24 when it came out, yeah. Yeah, no, he, well, um, Wilson was born in 1931 in uh, Leicester, which is a sort of industrial uh, city in the, in the Midlands of, of, of England. And, um, you know, at an early 
from a fairly early age, I mean, he, he felt this kind of alienation to kind of the world around him because, uh, well, basically he thought people, people were really stupid and, then, and, and just kind of, you know, half, half asleep most of the time. And, 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 and their vision of reality was so limited and narrow. And, um, and you know, he grew up in a working class family, um, blue collar, you know, in the States. And um, uh, well, they weren't poor, they, they weren't well off or anything like that. So he had, you know, fairly, fairly limited opportunities around him. Um, but um, he, he just found himself, you know, relentlessly questioning, you know, the existence and what was the point of it. And um, was completely baffled by how people could not be troubled by questions like, you know, when, uh, wh- where does space end? And, you know, which we know that, you know, you, the where does the universe end? Because it's an unanswerable question, you know, um, the idea of it going on infinitely is inadequate. We can't quite, you know, grab that. Or the idea of it suddenly stopping somewhere, we can't quite grab that either because, you know, what's behind it or something like that. So these kind of, you know, or, or time, you know, um, similarly, these kind of mysteries at the, at, at the base of human existence, um, th- these were, you know, very apparent to him from an early age, but um, he just was amazed that the people around him never, never thought of them at all. And um, this, this kind of loathing <laughs> of the world came to a, came to a heaven. He was 16 and he just decided that um, he was just, he was going to kill himself. And um, he was in a chemistry class at the time and he was very interested in science. He started out being quite interested in science uh, and he had a very rigorous kind of, uh, uh, you know, ordered mind, uh, logical sort of mind. And he thought that's where he, he was going to pursue. So he was studying, you know, you know chemistry at this time. And, um, there was a bile of hydrochloric acid and, and uh, he, he knew if he just grabbed it, you know, under the, under the stopper and drank it, you know, he, he'd be free of all this pain and this loathing. Yeah, yeah. But as, as, as soon as he sort of went to grab it, he, he suddenly had this imaginative grasp of what it would be like to, you know, actually drink it. And in that moment, he had this kind of mystical or just or what he would later call a peak experience when he realizes that what he didn't want was less life. He wanted more. You know, he wanted to be more alive, not dead. And this is kind of, for him, the beginning of what became this pursuit of what he would call, you know, uh, uh, these intensity states. And the, the thing that the, 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 um, the, his, his figure, the outsider, um, in one way or another, is obsessed with. And um, then, you know, from fairly early on, he, he, he quit school. He, he, uh, he decided that he wanted to be a writer. Um, and uh, he went and um, he hit the road, you know, at an at a, at a early age, he um, hitchhiked down from Leicester down to, you know, um, the south and then over to France for a while. Uh, he slept rough. Um, and um, yeah, he was basically people, homeless. <laughs> well, he was homeless quite a yeah. few times. And then yeah. he, you know, he, he would he would take all these um, jobs that just required, you know, basically laboring. He, you know, he, he, he the whole idea of any kind of career or anything like that. He just wanted freedom and freedom to write. And so he would go from job to job. And, you know, he, he worked, you know, quite a lot of, you know, physical labor, you know, menial kind of you know, ditch digging and things like that. Um, and um, eventually he found himself down down in, in, in London, uh, living the Bohemian life in Soho, uh, and uh, famously sleeping on Hampstead Heath, which is this huge open space, this open, um, wild area in the north of London, uh, sleeping there at night in a waterproof sleeping bag, and then cycling down 
uh, in the morning down to work in the old reading room of the, the British Museum, uh, which is, does, the British Museum exists, but the reading room doesn't anymore. Um, uh, but this was this wonderful old uh, uh, library in, in the museum where people like Karl Marx and Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and all these others had, and many, many other people had come and worked. So he, he would, and he would spend his days there writing this novel, uh, his first novel, which is called Ritual in the Dark. Um, and then during a break from writing that, he got the idea of The Outsider, which was the study of alienation and extreme mental states uh, um, and these, you know, these wild kind of tortured geniuses. And um, he wrote that in a kind of flash, you know, the first, you know, opening chapters of it. And um, he uh, had made friends with um, one of the sort of librarians um, who uh, took, you know, took note of him and, uh, you know, uh, was interested in his work and all that. And then he also basically sent the book, the opening chapters to a publisher called Victor Gollins, uh, who, um, make a long story short, told him that it just on the strength of these chapters that, you know, he, he, he was a man of genius and that uh, he would certainly, you know, write his book. And this was this, you know, the sort of the denouement of this long uh, journey that Wilson went on, um, believing in his genius, putting up with, you know, incredible inconveniences and, you know, poverty and things of that sort. Uh, sort. And then <clears throat> when the book came out in 1956, May of 1956, um, he, 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 the, he woke up to a country singing his praises. It was an overnight success. His genius was being, you know, praised and all the major newspapers of the day by, you know, very important literary critics like Phil, uh, Philip Toynbee and Cyril Connolly and um, Edith Sitwell and others like that. Um, and, but what had happened is unfortunately that he was very young. He was 24. Um, he became associated with a group of other writers who um, got called the angry young men. And they yeah. usually kind of they usually kind of say, oh, they're sort of like the, you know, the Brit equivalent of the Beats, but they really were, they were, they weren't as wild as the Beats and they were more on the whole sort of socially conscious. Um, and this is people like John Osborne uh, and John Wayne and uh, Kingsley Amos, who's a bit older and stuff like that. But um, they, they were kind of like the literary punks in a way of the mid fifties. <laughs> at the same time, this is when sort of like uh, uh, Elvis Presley, was first becoming famous and James Dean had been around for a year or two or something like that. So this whole kind of youth uh, energy and, it, and, and, and so much of it is kind of uh, disdainful of, you know, the estab what, what came to be known as the establishment. It was disdainful of the, you know, the generation um, uh, before it. And, but Wilson didn't really have these kinds of social issues and he really wasn't interested in sort of, uh, sort of, you know, the working man's problems or this sort of thing. He was really, you know, he, he was England's homegrown existentialist. So he was concerned and obsessed with this notions of this inner freedom and, and people like um, Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus and Hermann Hesse. He was one of the first people to write in English at length about Hesse, who subsequently became, you know, um, posthumously, you know, a uh, bestseller uh, in, in, in the mid 60s into the 70s. And, uh, and what had happened is that after these, this group of writers getting all this press, sort of like you know, rock, rock stars would get later or movie stars were getting at the time. And the photographers would follow them around in their haunts in Soho and in the pubs and things like that. And they were all, always kind of getting into these, you know, sort of literary battles that would kind of almost turn into, you know, fisticuffs and so on. Um, the public just got really tired of them. You know, they just got fed up with seeing these, you know, young 
um, you know, um, sort of gutter snipes, as it were, uh, you know, uh, in the papers all the time, and favor turned against them. And they especially turned against Wilson. I mean, his second book came out called Religion and the Rebel. I mean, everybody panned it completely. Um, and he became persona non grata. And uh, it really took a lot of courage uh, and determination for him not to not to actually can it then, as, as you know, some of his friends who were on sort of his side of the kind of uh, ideological divide uh, among the angry young men. Um, uh, many of them stopped, stopped writing, but he hunkered down. He wound up going down to Cornwall from London in 1957, um, uh, chased down there by a scandal. And uh, he stayed down there ever since. And that was the best thing that happened to him. I mean, he holed up in, you know, some, it, then there was nobody else around. He, had, he started out with this kind of mud cottage, you know, and uh, later moved into a bigger place. But uh, it, it was sort of the end of the world uh, down there then. Yeah, yeah. And he kept writing. And so pretty much I'm saying he was kind of out of favor generally from about, you know, the end of the 50s up until when the, the gold came out again. So I wanted to ask you, well, first, um, it's kind of like a three-part question. So um, what is the outsider about? Mm. And also uh, for people that may not know in my audience what existentialism is right. or was, and then how, because his version, as you say in the book of existentialism, really differed in some ways uh, than Sartre and some yeah. of the other, uh, more like the continental Yes, yes. Existentialists. Yes. Um, well, just okay. We're brief. Existentialism is a, a philosophy, school of philosophy, um, that was you know became really popular um, after World War Two, and as you say, with uh, Jean Paul Sartre and and Albert Camus um, in Paris and in the Left Bank and you know other people, and it was um, basically it was focused on the idea of freedom and that um, it, it took for granted that sort of the religious certainties that, you know, we, people had accepted for centuries before, just no longer, they just, they just weren't true or it didn't matter. You know, they were no longer applicable. So uh, there was um, a world in which there was no God and there wasn't any kind of um, notion of progress or anything like that. All, all, all the sort of, you know, After World War II and the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah all, all, all the sort of big narratives that sort of yeah. made, gave the world meaning didn't work then. And it was up to the individual to create some kind of meaning through his choices. So full responsibility for your sort of existence, as it were, uh, to give meaning to your existence fell, fell upon yourself. And this creates you know, a variety of different kinds of challenges and so on and so on. And it, it, it goes back to a German philosopher, Martin Heidegger, who uh, in the 20s um, published a book called Being in Time, and which he argued basically that um, West, the Western mind had, had taken a wrong turn sort of with Plato and it had gone off into this kind of abstract world of rationalization and so on and so on and, and had lost track with authentic being, this kind of, you know, real sense of your own existence in the world. And this is what his, his philosophy, which is very, very dense and difficult and, and uh, in many ways, you know, almost in, impenetrable was about. Um, and, Wilson, it's something that you say is, is con very continental. Uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't really, these kind of questions didn't really fit in with the usual kind of Anglo approach to philosophy, which is much more pragmatic or it's, it's much more um, 
based on empirical evidence and things of that sort. So these kind of big metaphysical questions of meaning and purpose and, you know, that kind of thing and, and freedom, uh, they destruct them as kind of, you know, kind of abstract. But, but for Wilson, these were, you know, deeply important kind of questions. And he discovered that, I mean, he was already pursuing these kinds of questions. Um, and, and these sort of questions don't, don't start with existentialism. They go back to, you know, even Plato, you know, asks somewhere, um, St. Augustine or uh, Pascal, you can find throughout the history of, you know, Western uh, culture and thought, you know, this, the, these kind of questions of who am I, you know, why do I exist? You know, what's the purpose of my life? You know, how should I act? Um, and so on and so on. You know, these are things that are, you know, um, uh, obsessed people um, uh, th throughout the ages. Um, but now they were being kind of uh, pursued um, more intensely and without having the religious backdrop, you know, to fall back on in some way, you know, there was a whole sense that, you know, we, we are living in this universe that exists and it, it's oblivious to us, you know, it, it, it's, you know, billions and billions of years old and it, it extends, we don't know how far in, in infinite in all directions and we have no idea why we exist and no, no one's, you know, no one's dropped us a rough guide to it and, you know, we sort of have to make it up as we go along and, you know, and that was kind of the, the, the sense of, you know, what the existential kind of horizon was like. And where, where Wilson was different and what the book The Outsider is about is that he says, yes, that, that may be the case, that may, that may be how we are now, but you have to admit that in, in the records we have of, of, you know, many men and women who have, you know, been you know, pursued, uh, troubled by these questions, um, it's not all um, this kind of gloom and sense of loneliness. Um, um, someone like Blake, you know, the poet William Blake, um, he has this sort of mystical sense of seeing heaven in, uh, in a wildflower, a world in a grain of sand. Um, William James, the American uh, psychologist and philosopher in his, his, his classic book, Varieties of Religious Experience, he, he writes about um, quite a number of different sort of mystical experience in which the, the, the fundamental sense of reality is not this kind of meaninglessness and, and emptiness. It's this kind of overwhelming meaning. And it doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be God per se. It's, it's a sense of a kind of um, um, a world that's actually saturated with uh, meaning in which we are blind to most of the time. So whereas like the, the French existentialists and, and the ones before them tended to sort of be skeptical about those kinds of experiences, thinking that, well, we can't, we can't start bringing those in. We have to start with what everyday experience is like. Wilson yeah. would allow them in. And he would say, well, this is part of human experience as well. And so for him, the, the outsider is a figure who starts out uh, with the recognition that the everyday world that, you know, most of us take for granted is actually, you know, um, false. It's, it's, it's illusory. It's, 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 it's sense of familiarity and certainty and security is just, is just false because underneath it is exactly this experience of this kind of existential loneliness, the sense in which the meanings that we usually ascribe to things uh, don't really exist, you know. Um, and once you see this, you know, um, it's difficult to, to be blind to it. And uh, Wilson has a line where he says, the outsider uh, sees too deep and too much, and then what he sees is chaos. And so the outsider first recognizes that the world, you know, uh, everyday world, the values of the everyday world 
that we all take for granted are, are actually illusory. Um, he, he starts on this kind of, you know, what we would say today, a journey. Um, uh, but he, he, he starts in this kind of dialectic of trying to arrive at some kind of new sense of meaning um, to, uh, to the world. And he, has, he faces certain sorts of challenges and there are different types of outsiders. And he's an outsider because he's pursuing, he has an appetite and a need for this kind of intensity of purpose that the modern world can't provide. Um, Wilson says that at an earlier time in the Middle Ages, let's say during the, the medieval time, uh, monasteries and churches, for, for, for men and women of like a strong kind of need or an appetite for a sense of purpose in some way, they could go in, into these, they could enter these uh, places and they could devote themselves to you know, spiritual pursuit. But in, in the modern secular world, there's, there's no really place for these people to go to. And um, they start to feel you know, uh, misfits. Um, in, in, in the ordinary world. And um, it's actually, you know, it isn't fun. It isn't fun for them because they, they feel out of joint. They, they, they don't fit in. That's why they're, they're outsiders. And you're not an outsider just if you're a sort of a beatnik or a bohemian or if you're, you know, in some way a nonconformist um, because um, it, it, the whole idea is the outsider has to transcend his outsiderness. He, he has to get past this halfway house when he, he's, he's, he rejects the everyday world but he still has a deep sense of, of uh, the need for some kind of purpose and he seeks this out. And um, eventually in the long run, the, the purpose to put it in, in, in a nutshell, to put it in um, most general terms, so Wilson is, is the pursuit of these more intense states of consciousness, these more intense sort of moments that he later called sort of peak experiences. But in the original book, The Outsider, he charts you know, through this kind of um, uh, experience through a variety of different writers and philosophers. So I've mentioned Hesse and, and, and Nietzsche, and people like Van Gogh and T.E. Lawrence and Václav Nijinsky, the great Russian um, uh, dancer. Uh, and also um, Wilson, again, he was one of the first people to write about Gurdjieff. Um, the Outsider came out in 1956. Gurdjieff had died in 1949. And so it was not too long um, after his death. And there wasn't really too much literature written about Gurdjieff um, that didn't come from people that were actually involved with him, you know, in, in his groups. People, Uspensky's book, In Search of the Miraculous, had come out and some other accounts by people like Kenneth Walker and others. But Wilson was one of the first to sort of talk about Gurdjieff and Uspensky in the context of other sort of writers. And so he's talking about them towards, towards the end of The Outsider when he's, he's, he's beginning to, the movement towards this kind of intensity of experience um, leads one to developing some kind of discipline, some kind of spiritual discipline. And so this leads to the possibility of, um, you know, some sort of, is, is there a religious answer to The Outsider's dilemma? And this is something that he follows up in Religion and the Rebel. But just to sum it up, it's basically these kind of characters who um, they're completely dissatisfied with the lukewarm everyday existence. Uh, but they're not just sort of um, you know, hobos or they're not just sort of beatniks or punks. They're, they're, they, what, what they want is an even, you know, um, they, they want to take on an even greater responsibility, right. responsibility for their own sort of consciousness. Yeah, uh, I... You know, I'd never read The Outsider. I'd always seen that, you know, on his, his books, you know, from the writer of The Outsider. And uh, reading your synopsis of it really made me want to read it. So, Well, I, 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 can't, I, I can't insist, you know, enough <laughs> that um, you should because um, I, I got mean, it from Kindle. It's, it's been a long time ago. It's, it's, it's the book that sort of starts him going. So, you know. 
Yeah, I got it on Kindle for ninety nine cents. Oh, so, oh there you so go. That was well, I think ninety nine cents worth were spent. Mm. <laughs> there you go. And it seems like too that he um, we, we talk you, you, you we talk about kind of like his his two different careers, but it, mm. it almost seems that he really like his first book really kind of sets the tone for all of his writings, really. Mm. Well, I mean, he's he's as I said, he's it's the same idea that obsesses him throughout yeah. throughout his long career. I mean, he um, there, there's there's a there's an essay by um, a British historian Isaiah Berlin called the, the hedge the hedgehog and the fox, um, and um, it's a study of Tolstoy. But the the reason this comes up is that the hedgehog knows the hedgehog knows one big thing, and the fox knows many things, many little things. And Wilson is a hedgehog. He's, he, there's one thing that obsesses him. And it, so he's, he's writing about the same thing from day one to, to the end and, you know, pursuing it in, in a variety of different ways. I mean, he's written say, books about existentialism. Uh, he, he's, he's written novels. Uh, he's written about psychology, the occult. Uh, but also he wrote a great deal about crime. I mean, the, the, which he ties in with the, psych, the psychology of consciousness and you know, these sort of existential issues around freedom and purpose and all that. And I said his first novel, Ritual in the Dark, um, it's, it's, it's best described as uh, Jack the Ripper meets the brothers Karamazov in post-war uh, London, uh, because you have, um, he, he takes the, the Jack the Ripper murders as a kind he's of obsessed uh, with the Ripper burgers. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but he he was obsessed. Well, he he wrote. I mean, I'm saying he he he. You know, he said he's an obsessive. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, you know, he's, he he admits to that. He says he's basically interested in a few things, and that's it. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but I'm not I'm not interested in, in other things. So that's it. So take me as I am. And so I think um, it served him well. No, well, I mean, you know, if, if if you like his books, then yes, you know, yeah. he, he wasn't necessarily, you know, um, how should we say, how should we say, he, he wasn't necessarily, you know, very exciting to hang out with, put it that way, uh, because you know, he just was, he was wasn't particularly, you know, interested in small talk and all that. But you know, um, the other side of that was, you know, um, all these wonderful books he wrote about fascinating subjects, which he goes into, uh, and, he, and he has this wonderful style. You know, he he can practically make anything interesting. Um, but getting back to Richard in the Dark, so he takes the Jack the Ripper kind of story um, about a sex murderer, and he uses that as an exploration of these sort of three outsider types. And this is kind of where the, like the Brothers Karamazov thing comes in. So the, the, one of the themes in The Outsider is that um, what happens in, 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 in us is that we tend to develop um, one kind of uh, uh, way of being in the world, or one sort of faculty or side of ourselves, at the expense of others, and so there are there are there's, there are, there are intellectual outsiders, people obsessed with ideas in the mind, like Wilson himself. There, there are emotional ones that are more, say, you know, keyed into feeling. Um, and uh, for him, and in, in the outsider, uh, the painter Van Gogh um, symbolizes, um, this, this, uh, this sort of feeling emotion based outsider and Van Gogh's life is, you know, my God, he wasn't an outsider. Um, yeah, he was. He was. And, and he went through the extremes where he had these visions, you know, the sunflower or, or starry night where the world just seems absolutely alive and, and just incredibly vibrant with vitality and, and, and energy. And then, you know, the, the, the crows, uh, and, uh, and all that, the sort of dark, 
you know, uh, emptiness, you know, um, and you know, he, he winds up, you know, shooting himself and all that. So, uh, ultimate no, you know, one out in, in his case. Um, and then there's the, the physical outsider, which in, in the outsider, uh, Wilson symbolizes through the Russian dancer Vaslav Nijinsky, who at the, in the early 20th century, he was, you know, incredible. Um, there's even, you know, people were convinced that he, he could actually stop sort of in midair. He'd be able to like leap up and sort of be motionless and some, which is, you know, physically impossible according to science and so on. But he seemed to be able to do this. And uh, he was an incredible dancer and choreographer. Um, but he had um, no control over his motions. He, and, and, you know, he was sort of a very uh, excitable character and um, was not particularly articulate, although his diary, uh, is one of the most um, poignant sort of spiritual testaments of the early 20th century. Uh, and, 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 and like so many of the outsiders, he went mad, you know, Nijinsky went mad, Nietzsche went mad. Yeah. Uh, so many others of them just went off, went off the deep end. Um, and so what Wilson does is in the novel, Ritual in the Dark, he has three characters um, sort of symbolizing these, these different outsider types, the intellectual, the, the emotional, and the, and the physical. And so there's a character based on him, the, the sort of uh, the hero, Gerard Sorm, who turns up in a couple other novels. And then there's this Jack, the, uh, this sort of sex murderer uh, character, although you know, we're not quite sure until, you know, pretty far into the book that he actually is the murderer, but he's sort of the physical kind of character. And then there's a painter in there as well. And so uh, it's a fantastic novel. I mean, it, uh, it, it deserves to be uh, come out as a kind of, you know, Penguin Classic or something like that. And, uh, uh, and that came out in 1960. Uh, so again, so he wrote novels about this, but again, he's using crime. He's using the sort of, it's these sort of edge experience, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, these kind of experiences uh, on the fringes of, 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 you know, sort of normal um, human uh, behavior that he's interested in. And I mean, fundamentally, he says, you know, it's wrong to consider the criminal or the murderer as a complete kind of different kind of person, because, you know, um, the only difference between ourselves and them is that uh, the kind of devaluation that, you know, we indulge in every day with them is just more extreme. Um, and one of the reasons he's interested in studying crime is like, you know, what, what does it mean for someone to be able to kill someone, let's say, for sake of, you know, whatever, you know, $20 in their wallet or whatever it is, you know, uh, the, devalu the devaluation of not only the life of the person they're killing, you know, to rob, but their own, their own life, you know, they're willing to throw away their freedom, you know, uh, for, for sake of that. And, but we shouldn't think of them as these sort of, um, you know, uh, completely different kind of, um, you know, uh, separate species, as it were, because we ourselves in our own daily lives, we devalue our experience in the same sort of way. Hmm. Uh, again, this is this whole thing about if our, when our freedom is threatened, if somehow it's going to be taken away from us, we suddenly have a vivid, immediate, direct, instinctive grasp of how important it is and how vital it is and, you know, what it means to us. This, it's, just, it, its value is just, you know, um, unquestionable. But once the threat recedes, we, we, lose, we lose it. And, you know, we, we, we too um, devalue, you know, our lives and, and, and our experience in the same way that the, the criminal does, not to the same extent, to the same extreme, but in the same way. So his study of, of crime, which he, he wrote quite a few books about, this, it, it, he sums it all up in this 
wonderful, I, I would say, history called uh, Criminal History of Mankind, which came out in, I think, 1984. And it's, it's one of these books where he's trying to write... Uh, it's, it's kind of like an H.G. Wells book. I don't, if, if you're familiar with H.G. Wells, I mean, everyone knows H.G. Wells from the science fiction yeah. uh, books and all that. But uh, he also uh, wrote these huge, huge kind of um, histories or encyclopedias, let's say, of uh, uh, this, uh, that was kind of for the average reader. And this is the outline know, of history. Outline of history, yes. And so Wilson's book, Criminal History of Mankind, is, is like that, but from the point of view of crime. And he has fascinating, fascinating theories about crime and di different, different types of crime in, in different ages and different motivations. And one of the in really interesting things he does is he takes, um, he takes, well, he takes this notion of the hierarchy of needs, which was developed by the American psychologist Abram Maslow, who was sort of the founder of humanistic psychology. It was uh, very big and popular in the 60s into the 70s. And um, Maslow believed that human beings sort of develop uh, through meeting a, a kind of a, a certain ladder of needs. Like the first need we have is basically, you know, is, is well, to breathe, you know, basically, and, and to eat, something like that. And then a kind of shelter and then, you know, some kind of sex life or some sort of, you know, romantic life, you know, relationship, you know, with someone. And then um, what he calls the self-esteem level, um, you know, getting the, the good regard of your, your neighbors or your coworkers or something like that. And then beyond that, um, there's what he called the, the, the self-actualizing need, uh, which is different than the other four because it's a need to actually not, not to fulfill an emptiness you don't have yourself, but to sort of actually use your powers, you know, to, to be creative. Um, to it's 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 a need to give rather than to to take as it were, but Wilson takes this this kind of um, stencil and he and he uses it to um, understand what he sees to be these different sorts of uh, nature of crime throughout the ages. And one of the interesting things he he discovered is that there is a parallel. There's a parallel between uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the different sorts of um, well, fundamentally, it's it's the different motivations for murder, uh, you know, to to be morbid. But this is what he focused <laughs> his his, um, his his existential microscope on. An interesting thing is that you know, by by the time you get into the fifties and the sixties, the sixties, you start to get this kind of self esteem murder where people are killing in order to. Um, get a name for themselves uh, and they wind up, you know, killing famous people because that's the best way, you know, um, uh, you know, you, you shoot John Lennon or whatever. I, I don't remember the guy's name, so it didn't work in my case. Um, but, um, you know, that, that sort of thing, or you get this kind of random um, motiveless kind of killing, which we don't really qu quite understand, you know, and um, Wilson, you know, theorizes that in some warped way, it's a kind of, it's a kind of warped expression of creativity in some way. So uh, this is, you know, this is a very, I'm giving a, a, a thumbnail sketch of it, sure. but uh, it's a fascinating book. And um, I think it's still in print, but uh, I, I think it's, it's what it's up there with books like the occult and, and the outsider uh, where you'll get uh, a overview of how these ideas that uh, Wilson has been, you know, engaged with for years can really be applied to understanding, you know, um, human history. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of his books are still in print, I believe. I just, um, I think they go in and out the, the new, you know, sort of new editions of them, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
he had two concepts that are interesting. And this is something that, you know, the book that I told you about, the Unsolved book, he talks about this in, in, in that. And two concepts that, um, well, one is faculty X, Mm. And the other, which is essential to the title of your book, is the robot. Mm. Mm. So what are these two concepts? What did those mean okay. to him? Well, Faculty X is um, a name uh, Wilson gave to this kind of curious experience that he had himself and which he found many examples of um, in literature. And he summed it up in, in, in a couple lines where he said, it's, it's, um, it's the ability to grasp the reality of other times and places. Now, that's not the same thing as being able to grasp, you know, that, the, the, that, that you know other times and places. You know, I, I, I was in New York three years ago and I stayed, you know, on Fifth Avenue somewhere or whatever. That's another time, another place. It's, it's not just the kind of cognitive knowledge of the past, but it's, it's grasping the reality of the past. And one of our problems, Wilson says, is that human consciousness tends to get fixed in, in, in a very small patch of space and time and what we call the present moment. Um, and our sense of reality doesn't, normally doesn't stretch too far than you know, what's immediately in front of us. Um, but in certain moments, um, the sense of the, the vividness of some past experience comes back. And we're not, it's not only that we remember that experience and have nostalgia for it, but it's reality strikes us in some way. The fact that that was real too, or basically another way of looking at it is saying, I am wrong to think that what is real is only what's right in front of me. Reality stretches beyond. And again, it's not an abstract recognition it's not an abstract consent to that idea it's actually felt it's experienced yeah. and the, the famous example that he uses is um uh marcel proust's you know uh, huge novel remembrance of, of things past and at the beginning the main character uh he tells the story about how um he tastes there's a little cake uh they're called madeleines and um it was dipped in a, a kind of herb tea and he tastes that and suddenly the taste of that brings back this memory uh, it, it, he, he knows he knows it he, he at first he can't remember what it's from and then it comes back to him that yes this I, I had when I was a little boy and we went on you know vacation or on holiday um, to whether it was my aunts or something like that you know she used to give me some of this and so it wasn't just that he remembered, oh, yeah, we used to go there, but the actual 3D or HD, you know, reality of it came back to him. It was as real as what was in front of him at that time. In fact, it was even more real. And there are a variety of different experience, uh, examples of this. Another one Wilson talks about a lot is in Herman Hesse's novel, um, uh, Steppenwolf, uh, which is one of my Bibles when I was uh, in high school in the early 70s, and um, along with millions of other uh, uh, adolescence. Um, but um, if you know the story, Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf's about this middle-aged, you know, 50-ish uh, year old uh, sort of intellectual who's, you know, fairly well off. He, he has enough money to live comfortably and, you know, he can pretty much do whatever he wants, his time's his own and all that. Uh, but he finds himself pretty much every night, you know, fighting off the desire to slit his throat um, because life has become this kind of lukewarm um, niceness. Every, every day is kind of okay. It's sort of like living in Southern California. Uh, it's, 
every day, day after day, everything is sort of nice, and there's nothing, you know. He, he sort of lost life; has lost its its savor. And on this one night, when he's determined, yes, when I go home, I, I'm, I'm basically going to slit my throat. Um, after walking a long time, he sits down at the tavern and he has a you know a glass of wine. And just at the moment when he sips the wine, suddenly, all these memories come back to him. And again, it's not just him, you know. Yes, I did that. Yes, I was there. Their full reality came back to him. And again, he realizes, oh, what a fool I've been. I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm mistakenly limiting the, the extent of, full extent of reality to, you know, just what's immediately around me and my, my miserableness, basically, and how miserable I am. And the reason I'm miserable is because that's happened, because I've forgotten that reality is much bigger. And it extends beyond, and I'm, I'm not trapped in this here and now. I'm my, my consciousness can move into different times and spaces and so on and so on. And so Wilson says, this is a perfectly normal capacity and function of our consciousness, except that we don't accept that. And, and what it is more, what it is in truth is that that's consciousness actually working as it should be something along those kinds of lines. And again, you can see where it ties into this notion of our, our grasp on our sense of values, you know, somehow weakening. Um, when, you know, we're no longer faced with threat or inconvenience. And as Wilson argues in a variety of different ways in his books, one of the ways to induce this kind of faculty X experience is to kind of create a kind of inconvenience. And again, one of the stories that he tells often um, is about the novelist Graham Greene. And when Greene was a young man, he was a teenager, um, he was as bored, if not more, than um, Herman Hesse's character of the Steppenwolf. And um, to relieve the boredom, what he used to do was that um, he had found that his brother had a revolver and he used to take the revolver and uh, take it on to this kind of, uh, again, a, a heath, you know, this kind of open land um, and um, away from, you know, people, no one, no one could see him. And he put a, you know, a bullet in, in one of the chambers and sort of just spun it and then played Russian roulette. Sounds like a blast. And, well, <laughs> And so, and so he's there and like, he's so, just you have to imagine, he's like, I don't know, 16, 17, something like that. He's so yeah. utter, much like Wilson was too. Again, I started out saying how Wilson, you know, was so utterly, you know, miserable uh, that he was, you know, he almost drank hydrochloric acid. So um, Graham Greene is there and he's got the gun to his head. And so he's bored enough to do this, right? And then as soon as the hammer clicked on an empty chamber, you know, and he didn't blow his brains out. Suddenly he says, you know, the world exploded into, you know, a multitude of possibilities. And, you know, he has like a mystical experience. Now, obviously the world, those possibilities were always there. He, he just didn't see them. He didn't, he, some, somehow his consciousness was so congealed and it was so uh, dense that he was unable to perceive, you know, these, these, um, possibilities you know basically life is worth living you idiot and but what <laughs> yeah. what what brought what brought that you know recognition to him was uh, you know just just you can imagine just before he pulls the trigger he kind of he's goes I'm, I'm 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 kind of doing a colin wilson now because this is what he, he would he would do in his talks and he would just pretty much what i'm saying i'm kind of doing his routine but you know he, you can imagine green like scrunching up his eyes and you know and and then clicking and then suddenly you know letting go so he tightens up at the thought that he's about to blow his brains out. And then, ah, oh, he lets go. And so what, what's happened there is Green has created an inconvenience purposefully. And then he's, it's relaxed. And then for the few moments after that, 
he, he suddenly saw the value of life. He said, "These I mean, now, sadly, it, it, this, this, he, he continued to slip into these horrible states of boredom and he kept doing it. And after a while, it, 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 not even that could kick him out of his, his boredom. So, you know, he gave up and you have to imagine, my God, you know, he, how lucky that he didn't eventually blow his brains out, but right. it may be unlucky because if you read Graham Greene, I mean, this is one of Wilson's bet noirs is that, you know, Graham, he said he was one of the most pessimistic writers around. And so, uh, so, so Greene did that uh, several so, more times. I'm sorry. He did that several more times. Yeah. 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 I'm saying eventually, eventually it wore off. So, wow. um, but, so that's kind of like this faculty X is this, uh, and he just calls it X because we don't, we don't have a name for it. But basically he's saying it's what it is really is our grip on reality. Yeah. You know, we just assume that, you know, whatever's in front of me and, you know, immediately in front of me, right in front of my nose, that's real. Uh, but actually, you know, the fact that I was somewhere else earlier today, that that's real. It, it was real then. So it's real or, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, and it doesn't have to, have to be your past. It could just be anything. You know, we, we, we say, Wilson's fond of quoting an um, English writer, G.K. Chesterton, who says, you know, we, we say the earth is round, but we don't really mean it, you know, or we say, yeah, the sun is 93 million miles away, but we don't really mean it. Because if you really, un, you know, if you really grasp that, yes, the earth is round and it's 93 million miles away from that sun, you know, the, whole, the, the, the sense of space, you know, would open up for you, literally, you know, you, it, it, you know, again, we tend to sort of simplify everything. And, understandably because you know the world is incredibly complex and you know we would um you know um too much reality is no good for us uh, as uh, t.s Eliot said a long time ago but the outsider wants more reality he's not afraid of it he, he wants to have it he craves it so that's what the faculty x is about and uh, the robot is the other side of it the robot is what prevents us from having these sort of experiences now how that happens is that for Wilson, the robot is this kind of um, evolutionary labor-saving device that we've developed, you know, over time, over, over human evolution. And basically, it's kind of an automatic pilot that we can hand over repetitive tasks to so that we could devote our conscious mind to, you know, uh, newer things, you know, different things, more things. So classic example, you know, Wilson gives is um, learning how to type. I mean, first learn how to type. It's, it's, it's a grueling, onerous business because, you know, you have to look at every key and where it is and all that. And, and so you're so intent on actually learning how to do it that you can't even really think about what you want to type. But then with any luck over time, you get the hang of it. And then suddenly um, you can type without having to think about it, without having to look at your fingers and make sure, making sure they're going onto the right keys. And you can right. think about what you, you, you want to, what you want to type. And what's happened is that the kind of business of actually doing the typing has been passed over to this evolutionary labor saving device that Wilson calls the robot. And the robot does other things too. It, it learns foreign languages, um, how to ride a bike, how to play a musical instrument, um, you know, driving a car, you know, you, 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 we, we, many of us have had the experience where you're, you're driving and having a conversation or you're thinking about sudden something and, and suddenly you've gone 40 miles and, you, you know, you haven't even noticed that you've done it. Yeah. Your robot has done it for you. And, often, and oftentimes it's actually best that we leave him or her to do that because that's their job. Oftentimes if we interfere with this um, kind of work that they've taken over, we, 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 we mess it up. I mean, I know when I was a musician, if I started thinking about what I had to play, um, it would get in the way and that would always make it, you know, 
more of a chance of you to make a mistake. Whereas if you, if you somehow get out of that subconsciousness and you just, you know, get on with it, that part of you that knows how to do it will, will do it. Um, but the problem with the robot, Wilson says, is that it does its job too well. It starts taking care of things that we'd rather do ourselves. Um, you know, it, it, uh, you're listening to music and it, it's a piece of music that you love, but at a certain point, something happens and it becomes familiar. You know, this, uh, um, that's something I'm very interested in. Like what, what happens when something becomes familiar? Because um, then you, you've heard it already and somehow it doesn't quite have the same impact. Um, it, it, generally with myself, I have to not listen to it for a while and then, you know, kind of can come back to it and something like that. Sure. Uh, a variety of different things like that. I mean, you know, Wilson joke, you know, jokes that, uh, you know, he even caught his robot making love to his wife and things like that. So <laughs> it's, 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 it's the robot starts to take over jobs that we'd rather do ourselves. And right. he's not a villain. Um, it's because we, we kind of let him do it because uh, <clears throat> what happens is, is that when the reason we feel the kind of faculty X experience, so we feel more alive uh, or experience our being more, as Gurdjieff would say, in a crisis or an inconvenience, is that suddenly the robot recognizes, oh yeah, you should be in charge now. Yeah, you know, you, this is this is this is you know this is a new situation. It's not you know it's not routine. It's not run of the mill. So you need to be, and it, it lets go, and we suddenly have have to you know do. And one of the you know the uh, one of the things that he talks about in in um, the Outsider is is a story by Ernest Hemingway called Soldier's Home, and it's about a character that comes back from, from World War I. And he's back in his hometown, and there's nothing for him to do, you know, that, that, that meets anything like the requirements he, he faced when he was in the war. Uh -huh. He remembers, like, doing the one thing, the only thing you had to do, and you did it well, and that was all that mattered. And it was a kind of, you know, it was both, that's a kind of a combination of, like, the robot doing its job, and you were there at the same time, you know, you're, you're with it. And, and in a way, even though we all know that war is bad and, you know, we, we don't want it, it, it has the kind of aura of glory uh, around it because it is a crisis situation and it often does bring out the best, in quotation marks, in people in the sense that they have to, you know, they have to meet incredible challenges and, you know, or they'll die. And again, this is, you know, the funny thing about, not the funny thing, but the odd thing about here in, in, in English history and London history is like, you know, uh, many accounts of people during the blitz, they would say it was the best time of their life. Yeah. Somehow that somehow the crisis uh -huh. induced this kind of, you know, they had, they had a more, they were more vividly aware of their own freedom, their own being and the, the you know, the, the preciousness of things, you know? And so this is, again, this is this paradoxical thing. I mean, Wilson's whole aim is to somehow develop a, a discipline where you don't need to put a gun to your head in order to sort of get the robot to take a break, you know, uh, and his approach is rather than try to put the robot to sleep, which is what we do most of the time to be free of it, you know, through drugs or alcohol or, or uh, you know, trance states or some other kind of um, uh, way of kind of minimizing its, its um, uh, control over us, is that rather than put it to sleep because we need it, is to, for us to gain, you know, just to become more and more intent in our in our own consciousness. And this is why he talks about consciousness is, is, is intentional. It's, it's, it's something that we actually do. It's not something we have. It's something we do. It's not a passive kind of state of things, a reflection of the world around us. It's actually an activity that we are engaged in. But 
again, we, we've, we're not aware of it as an activity because for a variety of different reasons, we tend to approach the world, you know, in this passive way. And that's why all, so many of these outsider figures that he writes about, they went out of their way to uh, find dangerous, you know, sort of conditions to put themselves in. I mean, Nietzsche said, live dangerously, you know, build your houses on Vesuvius, which sounds mm-hmm. like really bad advice. But the whole idea is like, yeah. well, no, being, being comfortable and, and, and uh, uh, secure all the time uh, may sound desirable, but it's a kind of living death, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. Unless rather than have to create, you know, inconvenience all the time or create crises, which a lot of these outsiders do, you can develop a discipline that would consciously induce the kind of tightening of consciousness, the tightening of will that the, that the crisis, um, you know, triggers now. And that, you could say, that's what Wilson was trying to, to do in his work, um, where he's trying to understand the mechanisms of consciousness. And this, this led into his, his, his forays into um, uh, a philosophical method called phenomenology, which is basically a kind of mapping of inner states. What were some of his views on, and of course I know some of this, but his views on um, like just the mysteries that he would write about, like, you know, we, we mentioned that he wrote about Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote about UFOs, those type of things. Um, you know, how did some of this fit into his general philosophy? Well, he was very open-minded. Um, I think, I mean, Atlantis well, he, 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 he wrote a few books in kind of the um, ancient civilization um, genre. I mean, yeah. from Atlantis to the Sphinx is one of them. There was another one called, I think, the Atlantis Blueprint. Yes. And then um, another, Atlantis and the Kingdom of the Neanderthals. Hmm. Um, which that was, sounds interesting. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, that book in itself was m- more than anything else. It was a tribute to his friend Stan Gooch. Um, it was a writer and a psychologist uh, and, and a paranormal investigator. And, um, and he, he had developed a whole uh, 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 ideas or system of ideas about human evolution and consciousness based on his fundamental idea that in our past, Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon mated rather than Cro-Magnon just wiping out Neanderthal. Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon mated. And when he first presented these ideas, Stan Gooch in the 70s, he was laughed at. But as we know, you know, more and more things come out right. uh, about that actually being the case. So that's one of the, that's one of the tragedies, I would say, of um, this, well, uh, 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 it's a tragedy, uh, Stan Gooch. And uh, he wrote quite a few books. And uh, he's not as well known now, but in the 70s um, and into the 80s, he... Um, Something came out about that last year, in fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, studies. But, but I think the, the, the Wilson says about his books about the early civilizations, to him the fundamental idea was that it seemed that the kind of consciousness that people of, people of earlier time, that he's postulating, you know, the inhabitants of Atlantis or even, let's say, early Egypt, was different than modern consciousness. Um, it wasn't the sort of kind of ego-based uh, subject-object sort of consciousness we have, where, you know, there's me, my mind, and then there's this hard outside world out there that is there whether I'm, you know, looking at it or not. And it's, it's got, you know, uh, my consciousness have anything to do with it. And he, uh, he goes and he investigates the work of um, this maverick um, Egyptologist and alchemist, um, René Shrala de Lubitsch, 
who uh, he's, he's one of the people who got the kind of ancient um, civilization kind of craze going because um, he pointed out, well, in the early 60s that the Sphinx must be uh, much older than, you know, we assume because of uh, the water erosion marks on it. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that people like Graham Hancock and, you know, Boval and many yeah. others picked up on and, you know, created a whole industry with. Um, but what, what interested Wilson was that, and, you know, this idea that people of earlier time had a different kind of consciousness, one that was more in tune with the cosmos, less kind of uh, independent than ours, less rational, but more kind of intuitive. Um, but he also thought there was a great deal of evidence for some, you know, kind of pre-civilization civilization. You know, um, he talks about this, you know, uh, global maritime civilization um, uh, that, um, you know, predated all of the, you know, the historical records and all that. So I, I, I he had an open mind. I, I think he, I think he really enjoyed investigating these kinds of things. Um, and then he had such a, again, he was, he was such a good writer. He had such a good narrative style and he did such a good job of, of research that people approached him. Now his book on UFOs, Alien Dawn, um, I know his publisher Virgin approached him and asked him to do a book on it. Um, because, because of the strength of um, from Atlantis to Sphinx, that was kind of uh, another kind of, not necessarily comeback book for him, but it was another sort of bestseller for him. That, 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 that book did, did uh, very well. And so on the strength of that, they commissioned this book on, on um, the UFOs. And uh, I mean, one of the funny things is that, you know, <laughs> he talks about when he first uh, started to do the research for it, that he had no idea that <laughs> things were the way they were. You know, the, you know, he, he had read some books on UFOs in the 50s and, you know, um, he had no idea about the whole, you know, ufology and the whole, you know, sort of community of uh, ufologists uh, around the world and conferences and things of that sort. Um, but, Again, what he tends to do is just read up as much as possible, get as much evidence or material, you know, uh, for him to sift through and then come to his conclusions. In the end, he felt that there was, whatever is happening uh, to people who are, you know, claim to be abducted, uh, in many of the cases, what we consider to be the rational explanation is just inadequate. It just doesn't cover all the bases. And in this, he, you know, he, he, he refers to uh, John Mack, you know, the Harvard um, yeah. um, academic who, you know, got into so much uh, hot water over his, over his studies, which came to the same conclusion. Um, you know, you know uh, try though I may, I, I just can't account for some of these stories using the, you know, the, the usual kind of, you know, reductive, um, you know, materialist um, uh, explanations. And then Wilson came to the conclusion, he felt that all the strange things that surround, you know, UFO experiences, uh, the kind of thing that uh, Jacques Vallée um, mm -hmm. uh, and others, uh, you know, were studying where it, it went more from sort of nuts and bolts, kind of, you know, flying machines to uh, sort of experiences of different dimensions or, and then relating back to historical different kinds of entities like fairies and elves and so on and so on, that kind of thing. So he, he felt there was some, in some way, some kind of intelligence was priming the human race for some shift in consciousness. I mean, he believed, he, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a millenarian uh, and he didn't have sort of apocalyptic kind of ideas, but he did believe that uh, 
mankind, you know, womankind too, we're all in on this, uh, um, was on, on the, so the cusp of a kind of shift in consciousness. And again, he didn't mean the Aquarian age or any of the kind of usual things, you know, the harmonic invention or whatever. Um, because he, he's looking at it in, in longer historical terms and he, he's basically saying this, this starts with the romantics in the late 18th century. And it's basically an opening up consciousness you know you have the romantics and they they have these kind of experiences you know these faculty x these moments of ecstasy these kind of mystical experiences right. uh, but, they, but they lack the discipline to be able to hold on to them and, and actually they're kind of most of them are kind of wrecked by these things they're you know they, they so uh they're so powerful that when they come down to earth that the kind of everyday life is just repellent to them you know and they go out of their way to try and repeat these experiences and as we said before, many of them crack up. Some like Coleridge and De Quincey, you know, become um, opium addicts. Um, others are alcoholics and so on and so on. So um, what Wilson wants to do is, yes, those kind of ecstatic experiences, but we need to develop a discipline to be able to, uh, well, sort of build up our consciousness so, so that we're not overwhelmed by these experiences. And also that, you know, we can understand the mechanisms that allow for them to happen. Um, so in a way, he wants to kind of bring the Romantics and the Existentialists kind of together. The Existentialists were tougher than the Romantics, but they 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 turned a cold shoulder to these kind of ecstatic experiences. You know, the existential experience isn't isn't one of ecstasy. It isn't like Blake. It isn't like Wordsworth or you know or Keats. It isn't like that. It's 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 a it's a sharper, harder. Um, you know, we, we you know we, we again it's existential has become this kind of catch-all word we use like weird or you know gnostic or surreal but it generally means some kind of you know uh, crisis state in which you know reality is too too much to bear or something like that sure. so so they they had a they, they they kind of took reality straight they didn't they didn't have a blindfold but they 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 would they were they, their scope was limited as romantics were open to these more ecstatic experiences but they lacked a kind of discipline and you know they were overwhelmed by them so he, he kind of wants to bring the two together um and in my book I, I i try to make that you know clear that that's what he's trying to do yeah i agree with him on his assessment of that the whole ufo or alien abduction or contact phenomenon um it's um it's interesting that uh, someone that I know that uh, studies a lot of this, uh, my friend Joshua Cutchin, he uh, studies, he's written a couple of books. He's got a third book out yeah. and he talks a lot about this um, correlation between the fairy lore and what mm, you yeah, hear now. Yeah. And uh, he posted this map of some of the, the most fairy sightings in the UK are actually in Cornwall. <laughs> where, yeah, yeah, well, you know, where he lived. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I think he was, you know, I think he had an interest in all that sort of thing. Um, I mean, again, he wrote, he wrote, he wrote introductions to lots of books too. He was very helpful uh, with other people, other writers, people that are, you know, uh, Ted Holiday is one of the ones he yeah. wrote yeah. a lot about this sort of stuff. And uh, he was, helped. another one was uh, T.C. Lethbridge, who he, he didn't meet, but Lethbridge was this Cambridge Don who um, became fascinated with standing stones and ancient lore and pendulums. And, you know, he developed a whole system of um, using the pendulum in order to gain information uh, to Dow's and, and it, it, it get into, you know, he, Lethbridge is another one um, who a lot of people don't know about these days who, who should be better known because he's, he investigated quite a few things. I mean, dreams, precognitive experiences, uh, 
you know, strange time slips, which ties in with Wilson's, you know, sort of faculty X thing. Cause again, it's this whole idea of, you know, um, consciousness has a greater mastery of time than we, we generally. Yeah. Give it, right. And speaking of time, I, I'm going to have to. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, Gary. I was going to ask you a little bit about your, a good segue. No, you can ask only, me one more. You can ask me one oh, more. Oh, well, okay, yeah. Your your own kind of uh, relationship with him, how it's he's kind of influenced, how he influenced you as well. Oh well, um, well, uh, after I you know read the occult in 1975, I just basically tracked down all of his books that I could find. Um, I was in New York and then a couple years later, uh, I uh, moved to LA and I had my own band there and uh, just scoured all the, you know, bookshops in, in that area. And then when I was on tour and um, I just built up, um, you know, a library, quite a few of his books and I became just completely um, obsessed, I guess was the, the right word. I just, I just thought, I just thought uh, practically everything he wrote was just brilliant. And um, he was talking about things I was deeply interested in and introducing me to lots and lots of, you know, fascinating people. Like, you know, he wrote about Crowley, he wrote about Gurdjieff, he wrote about Spensky, he wrote about Madame Blavatsky, um, you know, um, somebody, and, and the, the follow-up book to the occult, Mysteries, which came out in 78, whereas the occult was a history sort of of the occult from ancient times to, you know, I guess, contemporary more or less. Um, Mysteries was about what was happening, you know, since it came out. And after the occult came out, the 70s was, you know, that was a whole decade of, you know, occult, paranormal, mystical, supernatural, you know, sorts of um, experiments and uh, explorations for a variety of different um, people. And so he, the mysteries just gathered so much stuff together. Uh, and he was looking into every, everything, you know, I mean, I can't even begin to say. Um, uh, and um, so that book I had with me uh, in 1983, when I went on a kind of mini mini search of the miraculous um, uh, first with a friend of mine and then um, on my own uh, we, we came uh, well came came to Europe came, came to England then we traveled on the continent that um, we went to places like Chart and and uh, 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 tracked down um, where Gurdjieff had his um, Institute for the harmonious development of man in the forest of Fontainebleau outside of Paris and uh, then here uh, here in, in England um, you know, went to Stonehenge and Avebury and different places like that. And um, part of my uh, itinerary was to go down to Cornwall to meet Wilson. Uh, and I remember hitching and, you know, taking coaches and so on and finding my way down there. And I forget how I got his phone number. I got his phone number from a, a bookseller here in London who <laughs> at the time I thought, my God, how generous he's being. Then I, I wondered if he was like, you know, kind of, you know, was kind of a, not a joke, but, you know, he was saying, oh, Colin likes visitors, so I, I don't know. You know. But, I mean, the thing was, Wilson, his house was open to everybody. Lots and lots of people came there. I mean, um, uh, many, many different, you know, people in kind of the alternative scene and literary people, you know, because, you know, it, it was in a lovely setting. And I just made my way down um, and um, telephoned him from Penzance, which was uh, not too far from where he lived in. Cornwall and um, yes he invited me to come and stay and so I wound up going there and um, we 
spent an evening drinking wine. He was a great, you know, wine drinker and um, discussing his ideas. And um, from that time on, I, I stayed in touch and corresponded. And uh, at one point, he, um, when I was still living in Los Angeles, he came, he was doing um, sort of a book tour and he was going to be in LA area for a while. And um, I was house sitting uh, for one of the owners of a bookshop I worked at. It's called the Bodhi Tree, and it was. Uh, and it's no, it doesn't exist anymore. But in its day, it was sort of the m most famous uh, um, metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. Uh, in any case, it was it was a very popular place, and and uh, one of the owners had this wonderful um, house up in the Hollywood Hills with a jacuzzi and a garden and all this kind of thing. So I invited you know Wilson and his wife to stay there. So he stayed uh, uh, with us there. Um, and then we just, we stayed friends. And, um, since I'm living here, uh, in London since 96, I've been down to Cornwall quite a few times. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, you know, he's a mentor, but you know, a friend, I mean, I'm not the only person he, he you know, lots of other people, uh, knew him. He was very open, very generous. And, um, when he died, um, you know, it's, well, it would be five years, um, at the end of this year, five years yeah. ago. Um, that's when I was determined I was going to, you know, write a book about him because I, I felt it needed to be written. Um, and, uh, I got in touch with my publisher, my editor at the time, um, at, at Penguin. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to do it with you, but you know, I can understand if you might not want to do the book because it, it, he's not as popular maybe in the States and so on and so on. But in any case, I convinced them that, you know, it was worth doing that his ideas were important. And not only did he commission the book, he also, um, Penguin also had the rights to the outsider in the U.S., and so they put out a new edition of that and asked me to write an introduction to it. So that was that was a very nice thing. It was and it, it made sense. The it, both things came out in two thousand sixteen. That was the sixtieth anniversary of the outsider coming out. So um, it it all made a kind of sense. And um, no, I'm I'm what can I say? I'm 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 grateful that I had the opportunity and the privilege uh, to write my book about him. And where can people find the book? Uh, at all good bookshops. I mean, you know, it's on, it's on Amazon and all sure. the places. So, mm -hmm. uh, ho hopefully you're not going to find any at the secondhand bookshops. If, if, <laughs> if, if any of them still exist these days, people keep them. Well, thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate it. And yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm going to close this section out. If you stay on the line for me just for a bit and uh, guys, we'll be back. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, another book on conspiracy. <laughs> few hours later what's up rob i missed you today yeah how'd it go it went very 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 well except for all my my all my struggles with skype <laughs> that's it, normal it it made the decision actually the, the decision was made for me we were we were just talking about communism in here so i think the <laughs> i think the microsoft is just another form of the the Khmer rouge they made a uh they made the decision to update my Skype last night. I couldn't even, I couldn't even log into it, and so it updated. And I think it updated to the version that you have, which is for Windows 10. 
Oh, I'm sorry. And the version that I, and I have Windows 7, so I think that it's like not even working. <laughs> so I had Gary Lockman coming on and he was, he already had Zoom put on his computer. So he said, well, no problem. We'll just do it with Zoom. And I did. And uh, actually, I've already sent you the interview. So um, the only thing that was weird about that is it does not record into MP3. It does like an M4U or something stupid like that. So, you just have to. I found some like conversion right. software online that will convert it to an MP3 for you, and it just sends you to your email. And I did it that way, and then of course did it through Audacity. So just you know the struggles of me still trying to to have a good setup at my house. I might have to update to Windows 10, man. I don't know well, if I want to put <laughs> myself through. Don't that you pain. ever say that. <laughs> don't you ever say that in my presence again. <laughs> So we kind of downgrade have a, to XP. Yeah, that's what we should all do: is just downgrade to XP. We have a special guest in the studio tonight. It's going to help us out with the show uh, because Luke is nowhere to be found, uh, as usual. Say hello, Sergio. Hello, my name is Sergio Stevenson. I'm a listener of the show, and uh, tonight we're going to be talking about one of my uh, one of my favorite conspiracy subjects. Yeah. By far, probably the my favorite, most interesting. And we're going to be talking about James Shelby Downard and the book Carnivals of Life and Death. And it has a uh, it has a subtitle. I think it's like My Wayward Youth or something my, like that. My Profane Youth. My Profane Youth. Yes, nineteen thirteen to nineteen thirty five. Yes, we talked about James Shelby Downard with Adam Go Rightly on episode 33, which that was totally meant, uh, because James Shelby Downer was the author of a book, or I guess it was more like an essay called King Kill 33. Yeah, a conspiracy tract that was uh, pretty infamous in the underground before before gaining more notoriety through uh, being a part of the book Apocalypse Culture, the first edition. Yeah, Adam Parfrey's book. Um, and explain a little bit about the King Kill 33 conspiracy. Cause like I said, that was a long time ago. This is episode 202. So, okay. So, uh, basically, um, King Kill 33 is the most, uh, uh, probably the most complex and weird JFK assassination conspiracy theory there is. Um, it, it plots the entire uh, a series of events that leads up to the assassination as one big elaborate uh, ritual that is the killing of the king uh, is like this alchemical uh, formula. So it's he believed that that it was this elaborate uh, Masonic ritual that utilized symbolism and both the occult sciences and what were uh, the beginnings of atomic science. Okay. And was, out, was made to alchemically transform the population, basically, through the assassination of JFK. And this had something to do with, like, the 33rd 
degree parallel. Yeah, right? he he the series of events that that culm, culminates in the assassination of JFK all took place on the 33rd parallel. Um and he you know that's the the masonic significance that he attributes to that and that's that's kind of what ties in all these events that lead to his JFK's assassination. Everything took place on the 33rd parallel. Right. And the 33rd degree parallel comes into other things too, like um, the Trinity, the first atomic bomb explosion. Right. Um, there's also you know, Charleston is around the 33rd degree parallel, which is where Scottish Rite Freemasonry came into the United States, you know, um, Albert Pike and all that, him of the phallic throne, if you remember that, Rob. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, that's Robert Guffey. And also, Walter Bosley writes about the 33rd degree parallel in relation to Disneyland and Club 33 over there. So there's also, I think, you know, Roswell is close to the 33rd degree parallel. And Mount Hermon, in uh, where the Watchers supposedly come down in the Book of Enoch, is around the 33rd degree parallel. Mm. Those are some other works. I think uh, that was David Flynn that uh, cited that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things with the date with uh, that, like mystical toponymy. And what is what does that mean? The whole mystical toponymy thing, as you understand it. Uh, mystical toponymy to Downard in particular was the the science of. Um, places and geography um the the laying out of it could deal with like the laying out of cities the laying out of roads um the naming uh of cities of 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 roads of natural features in the environment of mountains um so to him you know in his understanding which is true that the United States really was founded uh, by a lot of occultists and secret societies. So he sees that all these places were, were named, uh, you know, for significance. Yeah. Freemasonry and all that. Yeah. Yeah. He also talks a lot about, he talks about like, was that the Dornado del Morto, the mountains and. Yeah. Which some of that kind of, uh, I've I've heard some critique of him kind of stretching some of the locations and some things kind of being pretty far off the 33rd parallel, but it's just kind of in the associative kind of his associative thinking where one thing leads to another leads to another and kind of, you know, this free association of ideas that all kind of, uh, that all kind of interrelate and that he tied all in together into this, you know, master conspiracy theory of JFK's eventual assassination. And using that assassination as a means to kind of change, like a magical ritual to change the the way people think or the way that to, the course of the nation. That yeah, kind of stuff. all all those things to transform the the psyche of of uh, of the American people in general. Kind of like a, I guess it's like a a terrorism, but a a deeper spiritual terrorism. How he sees it. That that really transforms, you know, the actual, the psyche and the the spirit of the nation as a whole. 
which in in a lot of ways, you know, it it really did. Yeah. Um, Traumatic events. Yeah, absolutely. And and nine eleven, you know, you could say the same, the same kind of thing, right? Yeah, same and his his way themes. of thinking was real influential to me. Um, just as far as you know, looking into uh, place and names and symbolism and occult symbolism in current events. And that's the whole twilight language kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in nine 11, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you got the, the, the pinnacle being, you know, the seal being penetrated. Uh, you've got the towering inferno, uh, that's like, you know, related to the tarot. Right. Right. There's a lot, you know, it's just a, I think what he really introduced, with King Kill 33 was just a, a way of uh, a way of looking at the world and and you know finding all these connections. That's uh, it's really interesting. And our like we've talked to um, William Ramsey, to um, another researcher that sees all this kind of like Crowley's numerology in 9/11, and so yeah, that's that's all interesting stuff. The this book. Now, what is this, is this book about? Like what, this is like a, this is a memoir, supposedly. Yeah. So supposedly Carnivals of Life and Death is his, uh, memoir autobiography of his, of his youth in, uh, mostly Western to Midwest America, Mm -hmm. um, where he goes through this series of, well, I guess it it really all revolves around him being scapegoated as a target, as a Cowan by these secret societies, because of initially uh, his father had ran afoul with him, so he becomes this uh, sacrificial uh, lamb to I guess get revenge on his father for whatever he did, and so this is a series of adventures where he's dodging uh, dodging death. Um, and it's one of the, one of the most, you know, just over the top, ridiculous things you've ever read in your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But within that, um, within that, there's all these kernels of just like random information, um, relating to kind of the, um, this like occult Americana of the time from the secret societies who were, you know, had whole, whole towns and areas, uh, just totally sewed up to, uh, to scams, con artists, carnies, um, fake money, pyramid schemes, just all this kind of stuff going on at the time. Cause it was kind of a free for all, you know, you think of like the, snake oil salesman and things like that. This really was this time that he's talking about uh, in the book. Supposedly, if if this uh, if he even existed, and if this if, if this book was actually you know his his writings. Yeah, and it's, we think that it's kind of like heavily. This book's pretty heavily edited. Yeah, like most, reading this, yeah. it's about two hundred sixty pages. I got through about one hundred and eighty. A lot of that was because I was reading, you know, the the guest book that we had on as, as well, and but it it, it could be very hard to read sometimes, and some of the most most outlandish stuff. And we're going to read some of that 
But some of the most outlandish stuff is really like in the beginning of the book uh, where he's basically a five-year-old and he's like shooting people and going through all these adventures. Like uh, I think Go Rightly described it as almost like a member of the Little Rascals. Because <laughs> 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 Go Rightly wrote a book about uh, about uh, Downard. Uh, it was like Downard's Mystical World or something like that. Uh, uh, James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. Mystical War, yeah. Yeah. Which is and, a really good like synopsis of mm-hmm. uh both his main writings and this uh autobiography. If you want to get started in this wormhole, I'd definitely suggest to read read that first. Yeah, it's definitely that. Expl- you you mentioned a word there, um kind of want to explain that to the audience. What a cowan is C O W A N. So Downard Downard explains it as being a uh a profane person. Um, who's is not a member of a secret society, the Masons in particular, but is 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 privy to information. Uh, therefore, he's he's profane because he's been exposed to things that he shouldn't know about. Yeah. So he becomes a scapegoat, which is just about all of us right now because we're also mm-hmm. like the internet has a lot let a lot of this information across. But of course, cue the at- theremin. Yeah, at this time, you know, the 1920s, 30s that he's writing about, obviously this kind of info is just not out there unless you're a member of one of these secret societies. Well, and the third part of this elaborate ritual is the making manifest of all that is unseen. So maybe that is the time that we're in now. Maybe that's what that represents, Mm. you know. Mm. Yeah, good point. Uh, You know, we were talking, you, you took me around... East Nashville, uh, the area where you live, and uh, we're kind of like talking about this little synchro mystical tour of of Nashville. And there's actually a Cowan Street, which is not odd in and of itself, except for the fact that it's surrounded by all these other um, Masonic names that are, are names that are associated with masonry here in Nashville. Right, and it's in front of uh, it's it winds around the World Baptist Convention, uh, as well as behind the the main Shriner Temple in Nashville. So that is like a profane person stands in front of the temple. So you know, perhaps huh. that was named, uh, you know, with that in mind. But um, there's also it turns into uh, Vashti Street, which was the daughter of a Persian king in a biblical story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, this way of thinking and, and seeing, uh, seeing names and places and symbolism really influenced me growing up. Um, and after I read a lot of Downard's stuff, um, you know, it, it informed how I, how I saw the world, um, mostly just speculatively, uh, not taking too much of it too seriously. But it's it's pretty interesting, and you know, the country was definitely has been shaped by uh, occultists and secret societies. So I yeah. think there's definitely evidence everywhere, and not just that. I mean, just uh, just mythology in general, which is I'm not one of these like people, you know, crying Illuminati's everywhere <laughs> just because. Yeah, you know, I think that like the symbolism and and the mythical heritage of mankind is like obviously going to be a part of art and a part of literature and, and right. Absolutely. Know, 
absolutely. Yeah, because this, I mean, because th- this this kind of material, you know, we talked to like Robert W. Sullivan, we talked to a few other people that are involved with masonry. You know, this this type of this type of subject, I mean, it goes way back. I mean, you go, you can take it into the mystery schools of the ancient world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so this this stuff, I mean, it, it's it, it's actually just kind of a normal <laughs> yeah, part of very human normal. existence. Um, so I want you to take the, the get the book and there's a there's a part about his memories because I want to make a point about this that you were reading earlier while we were at dinner. Um, so if you can read that, um, I, I, there's some interesting parallels to some other guests, some guests that we've had on this show, and some other things. Rob, have you heard about any of this stuff before? Is this uh, not before dinner tonight? No. Yeah. Okay. So this is all kind of new to you. Um. Unless you had heard episode 33. Do you find it? Yeah. Okay. So um, we were talking about this earlier too, whether he, whether he was influenced by a lot of the conspiracy culture that yeah. was developing when he was getting into this stuff and whether he then started seeing his own youth uh, through that lens, being influenced by these ideas of, of uh, well, I'll just, I'll go ahead and read it. Let's see. Yeah. In an area that can be described as limbo of memories, I teased out thoughts that were innocent enough, but seemed to be on the threshold of other memories that were real hellers. I began to examine each and every innocent appearing memory carefully, sus- suspecting that they might not be all that they seemed, given that some of the memories didn't have genuine connections or antecedents, which made me wonder if they were concealing something. While rummaging through that limbo, I found a genuine old memory with valid connections, and with that memory came a teardrop through which I got a glimpse of frightful memories from the long-dead past, and perhaps more importantly, recognized the past for the corpus mysticum that it is. When my mystical past revealed how it had really occurred, it became a horrendous thing cloaked in ink. In iniquity, the old now you see it, now you don't, that preserves the criminal mysteries of Masonic Oz art. M. Oz art. Mozart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So he's basically talking about recovered memories here. Yeah. And this was something when I read that part where I was just like, okay, this is interesting. Um, Because, you know, we've had on... Uh, I think the one that Rob and, uh, Rob remembers the most is Captain K. Oh yeah, right. And how his memories of being a genetically engineered super soldier on Mars just kind of came back to him all of a sudden. We're right? slowly coming back to him. Slowly coming back to him. Yeah. Yeah. But the, it, it, so, and, and then you also have people like Corey Good, who I think stole you know Captain K's stick. And also um, Al Bielik, who features very prominently in the Montauk and the Philadelphia Experiment mythos, mm-hmm. where he all of a sudden remembers being this different person that was on the USS Eldridge, and it ended up being in the he ended up being in in, in Montauk in 1983, and then they they transferred his body into a different person. And so that's very similar to what happened with Captain K or what they say happened with Captain K. So all that's very interesting that 
uh, here's somebody riding this. He's probably riding this probably, what, the 70s, 60s or 70s. And this is the same kind of thing where he's talking about these recovered memories. Uh, we were also, what we were talking about, um, the woman that wrote the book about Bryce being Taylor. chased through the woods, yeah, by Dick Cheney, and and yeah, you know, so th- that that's another that's, that's another and aspect, the satanic it. ritual abuse stuff, right? Like, yeah, those, you know, those all that stuff was real big in the eighties, early right? 90s all those recovered memories like that. So that's that's kind of an interesting theme that that in a way connects him to some of the some of the other things that we've talked about on this show. Yeah, and we were talking about whether you know whether he was influenced later or whether. You know, if a lot of the stuff in the book is true, if perhaps he's actually giving a glimpse into uh, these things having taken place for a long period of time, if not forever, right. you know, it's like these these monarch ideas, um, these uh, recovered memories, satanic ritual abuse kind of stuff. It's it's definitely all those memes that became. Uh, really big later on, but if this book is to be, you know, if half of this book is to be believed, then these are this showing precedents for all those types of things. Yeah, it it, it is definitely interesting stuff, and we're gonna we're gonna get into it here because this is sorry I'm getting ashes on the book. This is just it, like I said, it's crazy. All right, so some of the chapter titles, you know, the the, the littlest bootlegger. Um, my by little Alice, by little Alice, blue gown and golems, golems, not golem from Lord <laughs> of the Rings, but the magical mystery tour. All right, so this was an interesting section here where he talks about basically going to, um, I think Jekyll Island. Yeah, yeah, in Georgia, which incidentally is, you know, if you ever heard of the the book The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, where they where they supposedly came up with the idea for the Federal Reserve. Um, so I want to read a couple of sections. This is his. Um, <clears throat> I should do it in the Tornado uh, de Muerto in his in his voice, but I, I just I don't know if I can handle that. Uh, so, all right. Watson, Holmes, and Bell. Rich and famous people were, of course, members and guests of the Jekyll Island Hunt Club, but nothing on Jekyll Island was what was represented by and two outsiders. The houses, quote-unquote cottages, were not the type that anyone would associate with great wealth. The Jekyll Island Hotel wouldn't even have done credit to an average town in the good old USA. There was, as you might expect, a caste system among the people on Jekyll Island in which Alexander Graham Bell was preeminent. And when news got around in 1919 that he was to arrive, people acted as though they were expecting Christ. Alexander Graham Bell was was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. In later years, he lived in Nova Scotia. On his estate at the Bra d'Or Lakes of Cape Breton, he went in for such stuff as trying to teach a dog to talk and breeding multi-nippled and twin-bearing sheep. Edinburgh has gone gone in for honorary titles for a long time. Bell visited Jekyll Island in 1913 as a guest of Boston Bankers. And by 1915, I had a house there when the first transcontinental telephone line from New York to San Francisco was put into service. And an open line connected Jekyll Island 
New York City, Washington, D.C., Salem, and Boston, Massachusetts. His house was not much. In those days of cheap labor and material, it should not have cost so much as $10,000 to build. The furniture was cheap stuff, too. I am quite sure that Alexander Graham Bell never lived in the so-called Bell House. A fantastic story revolved around the fact that Bell was supposedly seen at more than one place when the transcontinental call was put through. He was on Jekyll Island or maybe one of the other places. Who can say for sure? In truth, Bell had one or more lookalikes. His son looked enough like him to have been his twin, and his cousin Chichester A. Bell is said to have been made up at times to look remarkably like the famous Bell. The Bells loved to play jokes on people by switching identities, something like Edwin P. Grosvenor and his identical twin, who were also part of the Bell clan. Bell was granted telephone patent number 174,465 on March 3rd, 1876, and the first telephone exchange was put into operation in Boston, Massachusetts on May 17th, 1877. The telephone exchange switchboard was connected to six banks or financial houses, which during the day enabled those institutions to communicate with each other, but at night was a burglar alarm system. In fact, the telephone exchange was in the office of Edwin Thomas Holmes, who was in the burglar alarm business. But this is a lot of stuff about Alexander Graham Bell that he kind of lays the uh, the um, groundwork on. So there's some uh, some very interesting things here. Um, he does talk about. There's one part in this book where he talks about um, trying to find it here. Yeah. So this is one of his. This is one of his. Uh, this is one of his adventures. Now, get keep in mind that he's like supposedly five at this point in his life. That evening, and the guests in the hotel dining room were told that Alexander Graham Bell would arrive the next day. The food, such as it was, had been brought to the hotel, and if I had known the word, I would have described the guests as regimented, entering the dining room in mass as if they had been a signal. That night, I vomited. Mother said it was due to the excitement of the day, and so gave me something to help me sleep, quote-unquote. The next day, when I was told Mr. Bell had arrived, I ran to his house. As the door was open, I went in and saw two bells as much as like as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Seeing them, I immediately ran back to, to, our, to the hotel and ran throughout it shouting that there were two bells. I even went to the empty rooms that I learned a few days later were used for gambling and shouted out my discovery. Only the men playing cards showed any interest, and that was probably pretended. Later, several people who were likely prompted to do so tried to convince me that I hadn't seen what I had seen. I was told that I had double vision and that I should be taken to an oculist. A miasma of mysticism permeated Jekyll Island at that time, and in my opinion, the people there were all connivers, swindlers, imposters, chiselers, pretenders, and con men and women. A day or two after seeing the two bells, I was told that Mr. Bell wanted to see me, and so I was taken to see him by one of the card players. There in an upstairs room in front of an open window, I saw the card player and Bell perform fellatio as a sex magic rite, in which vital energy and our occult power, described as a type of magnetism, is transferred. The rite also doubles as a rite, rite of submission in that the man performing fellatio on Bell was reinforcing and reestablishing the pecking order of witchcraft that anyone who looked up at the open window could witness and acknowledge. So... He seems to have a very. Um, this is a common theme. Oh, he has of a lot ga- of sexual hangups. Yeah. Yes, of oh. guys sucking other dudes off. This is <laughs> this is very much like a part of this book. There's later uh, one of the part I read just recently where he was talking about uh, his graduation from high school, and that's all over the place in that chapter. Uh, but here's here's a real okay. 
this one is just but totally bizarre. The death of Cock Robin. <laughs> there was no doubt that I was resisting and opposing everyone I met on Jekyll Island from the very beginning, with the exception of Bell, who had been praised and glorified to me even before we arrived on the island. In fact, I said and did things that were just about inconceivable for a polite child to do. Perhaps you have heard some adult exasperated by a child say, I could just choke that child, and of course some do. <laughs> I, saw, I saw no young children or teenagers on Jekyll Island, and I don't believe there were any others, so he was the only one, apparently. No one rode the horses near the hotel that were said to be for the guests to ride. There was, however, tennis courts how, uh, that the guests played on or gathered at. One guest in particular who was there much of the time was called Cock Robin, a nickname that most certainly had sexual implications. He played in round robin matches and the love games for he was said to have participated in by people joking with him had similar interests. Perhaps it was as much a week after I saw the man perform fellatio on Bell that a group of people assembled in the hotel dining room. Three people sat facing the gathering. Bell, the woman staying in the hotel whose house was said to be undergoing repairs and a man I had never seen before. I was told to stand facing the assembled people by the woman. She then said something, and the man called Cock Robin got up from his chair and walked up to stand behind me. The woman said something else, and Cock Robin lunged forward and started choking me. No one, including Bell, said a thing. The choking was skillfully done, and each time I thought I was going to faint, the pressure would decrease. After this happened several times, I was released and ordered to crawl from the room. As I crawled into the lobby and then onto the porch, the assembled people chanted, Non-person! 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 And as I sat on the porch crying, Bell and several others came out of the hotel. Bell gave me a rough hug, then he and the other men walked over to the Bell house. A few days later, Cock Robin was discovered stone cold dead in the hotel servants' quarters, in bed in the room of a servant who was alleged to have had some valuable possessions of Cock Robin's. Because Cock Robin had been shot, it was logical to assume that the sheriff and his deputies would have showed up immediately, but not so. A number of Ku Kluxers, and that's another part of this milieu for him, is the Ku Klux Klan is all over this book. Oh, and yeah. he's fighting the Ku Klux Klan throughout most of the book. Yeah. Or on Jekyll Island at that time, supposedly on a part of the island not owned by the Jekyll Island Club. However, I have been told that J.P. Morgan Jr. owned the entire island. According to a story, the Jekyll Island Hunt Club bought the island from the family of Christopher Pulloin de Bignon in 1886 for $125,000, which would mean that the Jekyll Island Hunt Club bought the land before the club was legitimately named. In any event, the Big Don family supposedly had retained possession of a small area and the right of entry to it. It was on that area that Ku Kluxers were said to have gathered. Oh, how I wanted to see their grand dragon. I wondered if he breathed fire or did any of the other things I had been told dragons were able to do. When it finally got around that Cock Robin was dead, I was told that Bell had invented a machine that could bring him back to life. I'm not spoofing when I say that Bell had brought a contraption into his house and showed it to several men. He claimed that with this device, he could hear a person think. I had busted in on that group with Bell's dog, about which it was said that Bell taught it to talk. I was then told that Bell was going to bring Cock Robin back to life, and the resurrection was to take place at midnight at a long frame building, possibly two blocks from the Jekyll Island Hotel. At midnight, the corpse, or someone pretending to be a corpse, was put on a beer in the main room and covered with a sheet. I was watching it closely, given that I had been told that when Cock Robin would be brought back to life, he would tell who shot him, and I didn't want to miss a word of what he had to say. 
There were candles around the beer in sufficient number to light that part of the room, but the light was not bright enough for me to see the faces of the people standing not very far from the beer. I was peeking through a window out of which a piece of glass had been broken. After some mumbo-jumbo, a man lit a candle from one of the candles and moved to the head of the beer, where he apparently started to raise the part of the sheet that covered the head of the quote-unquote corpse. At that point in the ceremony, I hollered like some banshees are reputed to do, and immediately a dog close by started to howl too. Then others took up the howling. Maybe Bell's dog had put them up to it, for I guess that he might be considered a bellwether, for even he wore a bell on his collar. When they got into full swing, shooting started. It was afterwards explained to me that someone had fired a shotgun to quiet the dogs, and possibly that did so, for I did hear a loud shout some distance from the frame building. But shooting went on in the frame building too, and it was as though the first shot was a signal. People started running, and I suspect that the corpse got to the door first. It was explained to me later that the story that Cock Robin had just been wounded, as well as that Bell was going to bring him back to life, were both told to get the killer to reveal himself. It may be that the resurrection story and ceremony were partially concocted for some reasons, but why did Ku Kluxers, dressed in their sheets, secretly bury a corpse or something representing a corpse the day following the, the, the said resurrection rite? So what the hell is going on there? <laughs> I don't know, but what, what's really interesting to me in the book is uh, relating to that and relating to the uh, to Bell is that there's this reoccurring theme of this the early technology and the development of this technology and the people who developed the technology been heavily being heavily influenced by the occult. Uh, there's even a quote from him where he says, "Symbolism is a cybernetic science." So, uh, he's got figures like Bell. He's got uh, weird devices in the book. He's got uh, about nineteen twenty. Was that the year? This that last is, story. What What does it say on there? Nineteen eighteen, I think. But yeah, and, and there's like a weird automaton. Uh, uh, the Dayton Witch. Is the that Dayton what Witch. I couldn't find anything on that. I was trying to find anything on that. I couldn't find anything. Um, stuff that's kind of like uh, he's basically saying all these you know movers and shakers who created uh, the technological revolution were heavily influenced by the occult and actually took a lot of their ideas from the occult and that their technology was actually manifestations of occult ideas. That's something you find throughout the entire book. Yeah. And he also talks about, he introduces in the same chapter of the million dollar gold certificate, which he talks about over and over in the book. It's another so thing. What is the deal with the million target. dollar gold certificates? Um, I did research on it when I first read the book. I don't recall a lot, but I mean, at this time you had a lot of, local currencies um you had a lot of pyramid schemes um in earlier america you know i think before the civil war you know they didn't even have paper currency right so it was just like right. banknotes so i guess a lot of those types of traditions were still carrying on and it still wasn't you know totally uh totally strange to people no that's what that was that was a there's this I can't remember the name, but there was like this breakaway or not breakaway, but this fake secret service that this okay. con man created. And I think he's the one who 
issued the million dollar gold certificates. And it was kind of like this just armed gang that uh, was under, you know, false pretenses of, you know, having uh, authority from the federal government who just kind of wreaked havoc, I think, in a lot of the Midwest. So there's another chapter I want to read, and this is about this, well, from another chapter, The Land of Enchantment, where he talks about Columbus, New Mexico. And he's talking about being with his mother. There's a lot of stuff about his mother. Oh, yeah. A lot of things revolve around his mom and, like, her denial that things are going on. And uh, at one point, he goes with his mother uh, to see with with this mysterious figure called the Count to New Mexico. And which is interesting in light of all this stuff about his mother and about some of the things that he would later talk about his wife or his ex-wife as being the great whore. Great whore. Yeah. Uh yeah, explain that real quick before I read this. Like what the what the great whore thing was all about. Well, he's he seems to think that his wife was like a uh kind of like a early uh SRA monarch type of figure and that she was uh brainwashed and had a like a, a mind control electronic butt plug <laughs> device <laughs> and that you know that she was basically like a like what we think of now, you know, in, in the whole the, the memes of uh, the the 90s, you know, like a CIA sex slave type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that that kind of classic stuff. But this was back then and it was for, you know, all the uh the elite and secret society guys, you know. I I I seemed I tend to think that his mother feels that like that she feels that same role a little bit in this book. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of uh ways you can look at much of Downard's Yeah, he had some mother stuff. If, he had some serious uh, mother psychology. Issues. Yeah. Um so I'll read I'll read this part because this is this is pretty this is pretty fascinating. Uh so he gets abandoned basically by his mom and ends up in a hotel. So we we'd only been in Columbus, Columbus, New Mexico, a short time before mother told me that she and the count were going to have to leave Columbus for a while and that while I, they were gone, I must not attempt to get in touch with my father or anyone else in Ardmore. That's Ardmore, Oklahoma. Now keep in mind here, he's 6 years old. Okay? She said Jack Thomas would be around to watch over me, but no sooner had they left than Jack left too. My mother had allegedly left some jewelry with the hotel manager to cover my food and lodging. What? (laughs) Who does this even then? Just leave your kid with the hotel manager. Here's some jewelry. But immediately after Jack left, the manager's attitude toward me changed. Previously, he had treated me to sleep with him and even prepared a few decent meals for me, although most of the time I was forced to eat apple butter and bread. But then he ordered me to sleep in bed with him, and when I refused, he threatened me and repeatedly did such cruel things as taking the covers off the bed I was sleeping in and removing the rubber hose that connected the gas jet to the stove. Gas was produced by a generator in the back of the hotel. In order to stay warm, I cut the mattress and crawled into the coffin stuffing at night and in the morning would turn the mattress so the cut wouldn't be seen. 
The manager put me in a room at the top of the stairs that can best be described as a death trap. It's one window had a shutter that the manager nailed shut after I had been there a short while. Then he stopped feeding me, saying that the jewelry that my mother had left with him was not valuable enough for him to give me food. So I took the little money that I had and bought a paper barrel of ginger snaps and ate them along with what was left of a jar of apple butter that I took from the manager's room. Rob was just giving me this look. He's just fascinated. When my money was gone, the hotel manager discovered the hole in the mattress by noticing that some cotton clung to my clothes after I rose. He went downstairs to get a heavy whip with a bull prick handle on it, and while he was gone, I took the door key. When he returned, saying he was going to beat me to within an inch of my life, he ordered me to come to him. I refused, and when he started to walk toward me, I ran over to the top of the bed and into the hall, slamming the door behind me and locking him in the room. He pounded on the door, demanding that I open it, but I'm just turning on the gas that went into the room and waited. When I could smell the gas coming from under the door, I stood to one side and tossed a lit match toward the bottom of the door. A loud explosion blew the door loose from its hinges. I looked at the unconscious man and then went downstairs and took a blanket from his room. Had I taken more blankets, my life would have been much easier for some time after that. (laughs) With my blanket around me, I left the hotel and moved to a deserted adobe, just a little to the west of Columbus on the road that was the old Mexican boundary line road. What seemed an eternity, I existed in that adobe under conditions that were indescribably dreadful. I scavenged for food. At night, I would build a little fire, kneel on gunny sacks in a fetal position, and cover up entirely with a blanket, contorting myself by sucking my thumb. I could sleep very little and manage as best I could to keep the fire going. In the mornings, I would search for food, which included, which included fresh, cat, fresh cattle droppings. In fact, I existed like a coyote. One day early in the morning, I saw a coyote some distance from the adobe and followed it when it left and in what way and in that way would find things to eat. Every morning for a while, a coyote, which I believe was the same one, would be in the same spot, apparently waiting for me. No one can ever make me believe that everyone in Columbus or Palomas, New Mexico, its twin town across Mexico, twin town across the border, didn't know where I was and the way I existed, but no one offered any help. One day, I followed my coyote to the carcass of a dead cow, just a short distance from the border. When I started to eat part of it, a man who was probably a customs agent shouted, and the coyote ran away. I walked up to the man, and he told me that the carcass had been poisoned. Then he turned and walked off. The next morning, thinking that he might have told me the carcass was poisoned to keep me from eating, I returned to the carcass, and I saw a number of dead coyotes near it. I never saw my coyote friend again. Cattle mutilation, man. So, yeah, he basically got raised by coyotes out in the middle of the desert when he was, like, seven. Yeah, he's tough, man. So, I want you to find, since you have read this book a little more than I have, find a good example here of where he takes on a bunch of dudes and just starts shooting, killing them. (laughs) Dude, there's gunfights, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He gets in lots of fights. Man. I mean, mean, this guy... (laughs) I mean, keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind, he's like, you know, this is between the ages of five and 10, where he's just like shooting people left and right. And he's, he's <laughs> taking care of business, man. I mean, it, it's like the little rascals Rambo style here. You just imagine it with his little suspenders and his little hat on. It's like a Jean-Claude Van Damme plot or something. <laughs> 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 so we'll let Sir Fiel find that, but, uh. What do you think, Rob? Like Bloodsport 3. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking right now, but mo- most of the 
most of it centers on like he's he's repeatedly made to retrieve some kind of treasure. Mm-hmm. And there's always like a trap or a tomb or a cave that he has to go into and do some death-defying thing that he compares to like some of the ordeals uh, that people would go through in initiation into secret societies and things. Um, so it's usually some kind of trap is set up like that. And then he just through his, uh, you know, his, through his genius, he's able to, his young genius, he's able to get out of it. He definitely was a young genius. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of putting it lightly. Uh, here's one where some javelinas, I think, eat some people. Okay. Let's see. There are a lot of bizarre stuff like that, like cannibalism and eating raw animals. And That's the only instance I could think of where he's okay. like seven <laughs> years old and eating dead cows. Because there's a lot of other like weird thematic elements <laughs> through a lot of this stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. Here, okay. Let's see. I think here's where he blows up this, this the Blue Front Cafe on Bloody Elm. <laughs> so this guy's chasing him or something, and then okay, how old I'll is get, he at this point? Uh, I don't even know, man. I'm gonna, I'm trying to what's the date to on get it? to the uh, Dallas, Texas, 1922. Okay, so he's eleven, nine, yeah. nine. He's nine. Okay, let's see. There's also the fact that there's a chapter in there called My First Gun, and he's already, like, killed a whole bunch of people with other weapons before, you know? And he's so proud that he has this little pistol, and he's been killing people with, like, BB guns and shit. So this guy tries to feed him to some javelinas. What's a javelina? And he escapes, like, a wild uh, wild boar. Okay, 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 yeah, I remember this, yeah. Immediately, I sprinted to the aforementioned anterior basement room and opened the window to the skylight, turning the gas pipe around so it protruded into the shaft. I turned on the gas. Returning upstairs, I obtained a length of two-foot pipe and a hammer I had secreted into the blue front a couple days before. I placed him on the bar and confronted the man behind it, demanding my wages. Oh, that's right. Okay, they went. He worked for him for a while, you know, sweeping and cleaning up, and they yeah, got to pay yeah, him. Yeah, so he's yeah. like, yeah, "Screw this! I'm going to kill everybody." Kind of an arsonist. And yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Normal yeah. life for a nine-year-old in 1922. <laughs> he said, "I'll have to wait to see the proprietor." One of the men I had only seen in blue front a few times before, but who wore a continual smirk, approached me. "I'm going to shoot you when you get out on the street," he informed me through his smirk. I'm going out on the street now, I responded, and we walked out in the daylight with him behind me. Once out on the street, I maneuvered myself so that my back was to the street, and I was within reach of the skylight grill that that he was then standing on. The man removed a thirty-two caliber revolver from his belt and challenged me to run. I had matches concealed in my hand, and when his gruff voice shouted out the command to flee, I struck a match and threw it towards the grill, but it fell short. Quickly, I stepped closer and tossed another lit match at it. An explosion was channeled straight up. The man who a moment before had been standing erect on the grill, menacing me with his revolver, was blown over the front door of the blue front. (laughs) Removing my pocket knife, I slit his nostril and then headed for the basement to extinguish the gas flow. The glass window was intact, and I closed it after turning the glass the gas pipe around 
Returning to the restaurant with my pipe and hammer in hand, I again demanded of the bartender my wages. He removed some coins from his pocket and gave them to me, saying, It won't do you a bit of good because you're not even going to get home. They brought in a professional to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) After he just blew this guy up. For some some pocket change. (laughs) With this news, I walked back out on the street where a crowd had gathered around an ambulance had been called. Some of the bystanders had lime on them because the lime at the base of the skylight had been sucked out into the gas explosion where it rained down from the sky like surreal snow. I looked down at the man who had intended to kill me. I slid his nostril because he had earlier informed me that he was intending to cut off my ears and nose, a threat often voiced in years past. Uh, that was a second slit nostril. Okay, wait. Okay, it gets it gets better. The wailing siren of the ambulance permeated the air as I walked down the bloody Elm Street towards Houston Street, somewhere between the Blue Front and Houston Street Bridge that linked Dallas and Oak Cliff. I slipped a shotgun shell into my pipe. He made this little like homemade gun that he would hit with his hammer. Uh, <laughs> I had chosen the pipe with care and the shell fitted as snugly as it would have fitted a shotgun. As I walked in the sun, I had the distinct impression that peril still stalked me and that my rendezvous with the cryptocracies, Thanatos men was far from over walking bravely, but trembling inside. I proceeded down bloody Elm street to Houston street and down Houston street towards the, vi- towards the viaduct. I was ready for a new, not, what but that part of bloody elm and i had traversed no people or cars were on it uh that were visible to me and houston was of similar appearance under such circumstances there was nothing to do but was what must be done and that was to go on uh the drama was about to be enacted on the bridge spanning the trinity river was part of the Uh, so-called eternal pagan psychodrama that's a big phrase of his eternal pagan psychodrama that's Mm. That's what he thinks everything is, uh, of which Freemasonry is an undisputable part. Bridges and their symbolism form an important segment of the mysteries, and in ancient times, people were well aware that every bridge had a spirit that required placation in some way. Unquestionably, the cruel, crazy, perverse Freemasons were enacting a bridge charade with me as the intended victim in line with their dogmas about freedom of passage and liberty of passage. Men who gathered at both ends of the bridge who sent my intended assassin were masons and Ku Kluxers. When I got to the viaduct, I spied men on each side of it examining something beneath it. My attention was suddenly drawn to another group of men just off the bridge near several parked cars. As I was walking across the bridge, the men who had seemingly been examining the Trinity River made obscene gestures and shouted hateful implications in my direction. I turned and began to flee in the... Yeah, I see why you had a hard time. Uh, it gets better and better, though. You know, it's I, turned like- and, I turned and began to flee in the opposite direction, but this was now blocked by other gesturing and shouting men. I wanted to climb over the bridge, but this was impossible. I hesitated temporarily at a loss as, as to what my plan of action would be. The small crowd of men that formed on the Dallas side of the bridge parted to make way for a blue ro- roadster, which raced the length of the bridge to where I was standing. It executed a 180-degree turn in the middle of the bridge and came to a halt. The roadster's highly polished blue door swung open, and out of it stepped a man wearing a fancy cowboy, wearing fancy cowboy clothes. He came across the bridge and took up a position on the sidewalk by the bridge rail, railing about 10 feet in front of me. Do you know who I am, he asked. No, I responded. Why, I'm Tom Mix, he said. You don't look like Tom Mix to me, I said, and I got all his pictures. I love his horse, Tony. (laughs) The man seemed pleased with my statement. 
There's another Tom Mix, but I'm the real one. He responded. I guess some Western guy. Yeah, Tom know. Mix was a Western star, like silent film era. Okay, Western star. Yeah. Your face looks thinner than the face of Tom Mix I've seen in the pictures. I told him. Well, I've been in the hospital, but they released me so I could do this job. He volunteered. You see, I'm going to shoot you one way or another. He was squinting, and his pale skin seemed out of place in the Texas sun. Come over here to the car, boy, and I'll give you something that'll make you feel really good. Something that mis- makes me feel the way I do. If not, I'll shoot you from here. He said, and it seemed as if he really meant to do it. He wore one holstered gun. I noticed that the holster and revolver were both quite fancy and expensive looking. The crowd of men on the Oak Cliff side of the bridge were now silent. Their gestures stilled behind me. The men were similarly behind me. The men were similarly disposed. Barricades must have been placed to keep traffic off the bridge. <laughs> When I turned to face <laughs> Tom Mix, his There's gun. There's a nine-year-old with a gun, his little pop gun with his hammer. We got to. <laughs> when I turned to face Tom Mix, his gun was on holstered and pointing at the sidewalk. With one foot on the road and the other on the curve, my left side was higher than my right. I held the pipe with a shotgun shell in it with my left hand and wrapped a handkerchief around it. In my right hand, I held the hammer. The pipe was positioned so that the makeshift barrel end of it was pointing directly at the chest of tom mix i swung at the pipe with the hammer but missed despite the circumstances i was not nervous for this tom mix character was full of dope and apparently mistoke my pipe gun for something more ordinary i swung the hammer again there's a loud report as hammer met pipe the spitting butt sh- buckshot struck hammer the impersonator in the upper chest he dropped his revolver on the sidewalk and turned slightly draping his upper body on the bridge railing. I thought he was perhaps only wounded since he didn't fall. I rushed and struck him with a severe blow of the hammer. Still, he did not fall, so I grabbed him. I was amazed to see that he was extremely light for a grown man, really nothing more than skin and bones. His fancy shirt was padded. He wore a harness in his upper body and a contraption that resembled football shoulder pads, devices that all contributed to the illusion that he had a chest of some proportion. Even his pants were padded. I guess the only apparel he wore that wasn't fake were his boots, and quite fancy they were too. On closer inspection, I discovered that the huge belt buckle he wore had caught on the balustrade, preventing him from falling. After examining the body of the pitiable creature, I dumped it over the bridge in full sight of the men who were standing in silence <laughs> on both ends of the bridge. I loaded my pipe gun with another shell, retrieving the fancy grave pistol that Tom Mix has branded, had brandished. I started in the direction of the men nearest me who let out a holler and ran unceremoniously down Houston Street. Before I knew it, the street was once again clear. Uh, let's see. Um, <laughs> so, so he was like, I was afraid I only mortally wounded him, so I ran up to him and clubbed him with the pipe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of a typical story in this book. There's another story <clears throat> where he's like facing off against these guys in a quarry or something. <laughs> and he also he has a lot of these all you know, that that almost just like is is kind of out of place. That story you just read is kind of out of place of like ev- anything else. Because usually he's, you know, he, except that he brings in the Ku Klux Klan into the into it. But usually he's fighting somebody that's like in some kind of weird secret society or something like that. And and the question is really, you know. Well, that's because they wouldn't pay him. He's just like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You better pay it. me, you know. <laughs> Seriously. What are you going to do, little kid? You know. He showed them. You can blow up one dude, chop his nose off. Yeah, yeah. Cut him, <laughs> slice his nose. 
uh, what kill another to, guy. Obviously, I don't think any of this ever happened. Probably not. Probably not. You know, it, it is kind of like this. It just there's a real mix of like truth and fantasy here. Well, and it seems to me, you know, we we were talking about how um he's trying to elaborate and trying to explain away he's probably trying to explain away a lot of probably real victimization that happened to him mm-hmm. and you know he gets to rewrite uh you know him being powerful and being able to overcome these situations and right. you know overcome all these just good point crazy dire circumstances um so that's that's where i think a lot of that just you know better they could just be false memories if it was really traumatic yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, if he was that young, he might have like that. Might have been his way to cope with everything. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Right, because children will 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 yeah. do that type of thing. And maybe if he remembered that later on in life, that's what that's what he remembers is not the fantasy or not the reality, but the fantasy right. that he had about what. And he's always happened. coming out on top. And he know. and he talks about that several times. He talks about stuff like that several times where. Like he talked about the part that I read about the hotel owner wanting yeah, him, to, wanting yeah. the hotel owner wanting him to sleep with him, and it's like it seems to me that there's some kind of like there there's almost like a if you really want to kind of psychoanalyze him, there almost seems like there was probably some kind of abuse that happened to him at some point in his life. Yeah, well, and, and that kind of like look at how much of a badass I am kind of attitude could only come from someone mm-hmm. that's real yeah. insecure and feels real unsafe, you know. And to I mean I've never read anything this elaborate right. before and just tall tales just like i mean it's they're very tall tales i mean i think that's the only thing that it could be inspired by is him trying to uh retell and own and and you know things where he was actually a victim and later on in the book he's hanging out with fdr yeah, it goes, I mean, he goes from these street characters, you know, and this little local, uh, local thugs to the halls of power and to mm-hmm. FDR and Bell, and you know, it's yeah. And at one point in the book, um, he's talking about, um, he's talking about FDR. And he's talking about how he's in touch with the president and the president is calling him up. Oh, yeah. A lot of that's about the million-dollar gold certificate. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. In that book, he says, you know, the chapter is 1931. Well, FDR wasn't president in 1931. He wasn't president until 1933. I'm sure there's a lot of inconsistencies all throughout the book. Right. So that makes you say, well, you know, there's – you know, if you if if even if you buy the more outlandish stories, you know that those those inconsistencies are there. Yeah, it really seems like he. All these little tidbits of information and uh, strange, strange happenings and characters that he learned about later, probably he probably you know inserts into his life and into his yeah. stories. It makes everything, you know, really grand. And so you had some notes here, too, that you kind of wanted to share as far um, as some of the stuff that, like, you come to your conclusions, especially about the, uh, uh, a lot of this being, these adventures that he's going on as being part of a ritual or, like, a, uh, some kind of uh, initiation or. Yeah, just that he, uh, you know, a lot of, 
there's a lot of stuff where just like the gold certificates, mm-hmm. um, I think he found the gold certificates in a tomb where he was like set up to actually, he thinks to be killed, but he outsmarted the the trap and yeah. he was able to, you know, get this cache of, uh, not just, it was the gold certificates, I think. And then, um, some kind of weird cryptograms that had his father's name on them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, that kind of ties into like the origin of his, of his victimization being because of his father running afoul with these powers. Um, but he's always like made to retrieve something. He's, he's always sent into some trap or tomb. Um, there's always some, weird character some some trickster some carny or uh con artist you know out out to get him yeah um, yeah he's very paranoid he had that very paranoid yeah, yeah so i guess this is showing you know him uh uh as being that paranoid even at that young of an age you know he's like yeah we were also speculating that he could have been schizophrenic as well. Yeah. Uh, to be totally honest, uh, if downer really existed, um, I think a lot of it's like classic schizophrenic. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, he's chosen, he's persecuted, uh, only he's able to see through the charades, um, his, you know, and, and what, What's really interesting about his his you know big conspiracy tracks before you know this came out and everything was that which it's a lot you know there, that's why there's the stereotype of conspiracy theorists you know being crazy is because there's a lot of this like associative thinking and these patterns and symbol patterns of him you know connecting all these dots that probably a, a quote unquote normal person would not connect. Sure. But it's it's very but it's very interesting, and uh, you know just like uh, art and music and things made by people with similar problems are often you know really really interesting and beautiful. Uh, I think the same goes for you know his way of seeing the world is not a way that uh, you don't want to be like him. Uh, you know, you don't want that life, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but just getting a little glimpse of that madness, you know, it can spice things up a little bit. Why do yep. you, why do you say if he really existed? Well, he's, he's probably the most enigmatic conspiracy theorist of all time. I think as far as his actual, his, his existence has been questioned by a lot of people. I'd probably say almost half people think that he wasn't even real because he was he's a mysterious figure only uh about three people i think it's three parfrey adam parfrey the Mm -hmm. the publisher the owner of feral house um uh william grimstead also uh has another pen name i can't recall right now and uh hoffman what's hoffman's first name do you recall is it Michael? I think so. Yeah. Uh, those are the only three people, to my knowledge, who 
ever actually said that they contacted or communicated with him physically. Um, and you know, it's like he was supposedly, uh, just like lived on the road in an airstream and was this kind of just weird character. It kind of lived on the fringes. And so these, um, and also it was admitted that these, these guys, uh, well, that Hoffman and Grimstead helped him write those conspiracy tracks. Yeah. And that that's the that shows the big difference between those tracks and Carnivals of Life and Death. Seems like it was this is probably where they had said before how his writing was wasn't too good. It's pretty poor, right? And all the elaborate language in those conspiracy tracks, I definitely see Hoffman's influence. It, it the writing is very similar. And Parfrey actually um, edited this as well. And, you know, he says at the end of this that um, Parfrey does that there's no more writings, but we think that they, that may not be true. We think that. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully there is some more. I've, I heard, uh, I heard go rightly say on the podcast that he has um, what I guess would be part two uh, to autobiographical material, which, uh, I would absolutely love to see. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. you're listening, Mr. Grow Riley. Yeah. Um, we, maybe I'll, you know, he, he may come on. I mean, it's like Kim and Greg Bishop working that contact T book. So we'll definitely have Adam back on the show and I might ask him about that. Like, see what, uh, if he's, if he does indeed have that stuff, which would be interesting. Um, so anything else to add? I think that's, yeah, that's about it. it. Just, yeah. you know, this guy probably is the most enigmatic conspiracy theorist of all time. I mean, to me anyway, it's yeah. I mean, he, not only his, his writings, I think really, you know, revolutionized <clears throat> conspiracy theory, but you know, his, his, uh, his personality and figure is just, you know, He's such an iconoclast who really wasn't a public figure at all. And that's what adds to it. That's why people, I think, get so into him because he's actually, his life in person is actually such a mystery. Right. Which is harder and harder nowadays with, you know, every everything is exposed nowadays. Everything is mm-hmm. oversaturated. You know, there's there's no one who whose existence is being questioned, who's an author, you know, yeah. too much. Yeah. So. I think that he died in like what nineteen ninety nine or something like that. Yeah, late nineties. Yeah, I late think 90s. one of those. So, yeah, and and from Tennessee, he lived in Memphis. So, he'd probably have a Facebook now if he didn't die. <laughs> yeah, everyone could find him, you know. <laughs> James Shelby down in Facebook. Um, cool. Well, that, this is very good. Uh, I'm, I'm. We're gonna have to do this again because, uh, like I said, you got a wealth of knowledge and. Um, want to have you back to talk about another book. We were kind of playing around with some of like David Gowan's material. Oh, cool. Cool. We talked about that as well. Uh, I just want to add this interesting day today here in Nashville because the mayor uh, resigned (laughs) today. (laughs) She sure did. We're recording this on uh, March 6th. So, um, yeah. I don't know. Probably a lot of people aren't familiar with the story that she had had an affair with her her bodyguard 
and she actually uh, got three years probation today and had to pay $11,000 back to the city government. And the bodyguard had to pay $45,000 back to the city government. Right. This is money that they call it theft because it was overtime that she approved to pay him to just basically hang out with her and spend time with her Mm -hmm. on a personal basis. Watching the Super Bowl at her house. Going on trips to Europe. Yeah. Yeah, they took a lot of trips together. Uh, there's also some weirdness, too, apparently, that they were going to a cemetery here called Mount Olivet. The one that I drive past every day. Yeah, and they were, like, you know, having sex in the cemetery and weird stuff like that. And apparently the TBI has apparently has naked pictures of her. And, yeah. So, like, you know, the first female mayor of Nashville in this... <laughs> Well, can I can this I give happens. my angle real sure, quick? Yeah, like yeah, give your angle earlier. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the we have a big transportation plan that was like the mayor's pet project, which um, we need a transportation. Yeah, Nashville's you know it's, it's yeah. growing very fast and yeah, because you work it, in the construction industry. Yeah, here. it's it's very crowded and and uh, yeah, the infrastructure is not keeping up. Yeah, at all. So uh, there was this giant project that was her pet project but of course it was gonna you know take a lot of uh government expenditure and so the Koch brothers uh were flooding the area with tens of millions of dollars to fight this project because they're against any you know big uh government expenditures that would you know be that would uh, uh, use tax, you know, higher taxes to fund, obviously. And so I just think, you know, connect the dots there. You know, the the baddest political operatives in America pour yeah. tens of millions of dollars yeah. into a place. There could be something then, to that for sure. Oh, no. You know, then we have uh, all this stuff come up. So I'm sure, you know, the word was out. And, you know, who knows? Who yeah. knows? You know, I really doubt the real story is ever going to come out about how that actually surfaced. But... You know, very, very possible. And we'd like to give a shout. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Mr. Brian Bone, who came to see us. Um, he was actually here in Nashville on business. Yeah, absolutely. We- and uh, we just had a nice uh, dinner with him at the poor house. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, thanks to fans like him and all you patrons out there and everyone that contributes. And uh, another shout out to, uh, Dan from Ohio made a donation on our website today. Thanks, oh, Dan. Nice, very nice. No, not a Patreon, but a, but a donation nonetheless. Yep. Good, good. And Rob, you can tell everybody where where they can. Yeah, if you want to join in to our donate. Patreon, go to Patreon.com/slash/ConspiraNormal, and we've got bonus episodes and T-shirts and various tiers and ways to contribute. And like I said, if you don't want to subscribe to something that's totally understandable you can make a donation through our website and yeah it's thanks to that and just the general support of you guys that we keep doing this so yes absolutely and rob don't forget to tell them because this is going to be out before tell them about cobra kai oh yeah uh if you guys like 80s music come check out the cobra kai our band we're playing at twin kegs too only takes about 25 people i'm not in the band but no, Adam's not. Adam's our biggest fan, though. He's yes, always I'm there, the too. biggest fan, yeah. yeah. And we only need about 25 or 30 people to show up, and the place will be packed. It'll be awesome. Yeah, 
it's going to just like sweat all over the walls. Yeah, that's March 15th. Gonna be slam dancing to some 80s music. So I think that's it, guys. Um, I'll thank uh, Gary Lockman, too, for being the guest. And uh, uh, I want to thank Sergio for sitting in. Absolutely. You're welcome. And Luke, wherever the hell Luke is, <laughs> dead in a ditch somewhere, probably. He's sleeping and dreaming about his fry kitchen. That's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's dreaming about having scantily clad women frying stuff with him. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Uh, we're going to have Nick Redfern on the next show. We're going to talk about Slender Man. And hopefully, uh, we'll have Timothy Renner on to talk a little bit about Flannel Man, too. So, you'll get to find out what that is next time on Conspiranormal. Here's where Luke normally says something stupid. Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.